1: Everybody, welcome to another episode of the GGTMC. We are two women on fire. <laughs> this time around Big Willie. <laughs> we'll have to stick around to the end of the show to find out what that means. <laughs> but we are back for another week of genre goodies. Alright, so this week we are covering uh we are actually in conjunction with uh, OTC, covering a couple films, same two films they are. We can't do a show together, so we thought we'd do this as a kind of promotional tactic and kind of a way to kind of share some stuff with the otc guys since our schedules are kind of so wacky and and we haven't had an opportunity to to do a few things so um we're covering uh ilsa she wolf of the ss this is the one uh the outside cinema guys pick that's from 75 and uh very infamous film and we are also covering the nest which i believe is from 2002 Yep, first uh which is a french film uh that will uh, one of the first films will and i ever discussed as a uh, Compatriots, So uh, we'll discuss that one as well. So that's what we're covering this week. And now we're going to talk about what we've been watching this past week. So I'll go ahead and kick it over to you and see what you've been watching.
2: Most importantly, what I've been watching has been uh, non-film related. Uh, it, that is, of course, in my opinion, the greatest sporting event in the world. That's the World Cup. Uh, I know it's, it's met with some kind of meh uh, from a lot of people in North America, but... Uh, I absolutely love it. Uh, I'm a fan of football, you know, more casual than anything outside of uh, World Cup time. I mean, I, I keep up with it and watch matches when I can, but the World Cup to me just is, I, I've watched almost every game so far, mm-hmm. um, which as you you know, being a baseball fan with that many games uh, cuts into your movie viewing. Imagine three games a day for yes. you know, <laughs> six weeks really cut into my movie time, but I'm happy. I'm, I'm okay with that because it's once every four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my beloved England, of course, had a draw with your beloved United States. Uh, very good game. I'm hoping it turned a lot of people, a lot of Americans, on to the beautiful game uh, because it was a you know pretty exciting match, a lot of emotions. Um, so hopefully more people are watching it. Uh, and I got to see, actually, my I, as, a, as an aside, my son and my father-in-law, Frank, the Alan Arkish lookalike, um, <laughs> <Yes>. were... <laughs> We're on TV last night uh, because of this. We were watching the uh, Italy uh, Paraguay game at the Italian Social Club here in town. And, of course, my in-laws bought William his uh, azure blue uh, Italian kit. So he had the shorts and jersey on. And uh, our local news was there. So they interviewed uh, uh, William and my father-in-law. So it was kind of cool. We got to see William on TV and, and all that good stuff. So, yeah.
1: It, 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 every time I hear the words, because of also being an American, every time I hear the words Italian social club, I immediately think of the mob. <laughs>
2: like, yeah, this is the Italian social club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's much more quaint than that. It's uh, a lot of. Uh, well, they're gearing up for a big. A, I would think I'd love for you to be down here for sometime the Fiesta Week, which is all the different social clubs mm-hmm. uh, Greek, Italian, Portuguese, all the Caribbean ones, German. It's like a big uh, festival where everyone puts together, uh, traditional cultural events with traditional cultural food. So I'm going to be eating a lot of pierogies, a lot of schnitzel and a lot of Italian sausage this week, man. Nice. Yeah, it's going to be good. But, uh, that, that's all as an aside movie watching. I had a, a decent week considering all the, the footy I've been watching, uh, as I said, it's, it's clear the PVR week. So a month I should say. Uh, so I'm really trying to chip away at the PVR. Um, Started with a rewatch. Uh, that's the harder they come. The Jimmy Cliff uh, starring vehicle uh, holds up as a really good film with a very good soundtrack. I wish that more filmmakers shot in Jamaica and the islands because I think there's a lot of stories that could be told about people's struggles with life there, and uh, you know, juxtaposed with the beauty of the island itself. So,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, you know, holds up as a good film. Another rewatch. Actually, what a lot of this week. The Day of the Jackal. Uh, ah, yes. which I know you've seen you're a fan of it's a pretty good film um, I enjoyed it. Uh, it it's quiet in spots but I think when you have a solitary job like a hitman does it's going to be a little quiet in spots right um, watched a bit of an oddity uh, that I know you wanted to hear about Five Minutes to Live which is a Johnny Cash film where he plays a hitman uh, it goes door to door it's um, it's okay it's it's not great it, It's it's okay uh, worth a watch, I think, for Johnny Cash uh, enthusiasts, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, watched Quiet Anne, which I'd never seen before. Uh, I told you this film is, I think, had to have been a big um, influence on Trader's Mishu, My Life in Four Chapters, because it's the same, same thing It's Four Stories. Uh, one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen, I mean, I told you, you know, I just, I always marvel at how well Japan or Japanese filmmakers combine art house with more lurid, kind of, uh, or or not sleazy, but more genre-type stuff, how they meld the two worlds quite well. Right. Um, So great stuff. I watched Brooklyn's Finest, the new Antoine Fuqua film.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, How was that?
2: Any good? um, You know what? It was good. It was cliche-ridden, and Uh some of the emotional arcs fell flat for me. Okay. Uh, But I would say it's worth a look. Um, Richard Gere, who I think has squandered most of his career being in chick flicks, uh, who I think is a decent actor. He puts in a pretty good performance here. Cheadle's, you know, standard issue Cheadle, which is good. Uh, Ethan Hawke is pretty good as a desperate, uh, somewhat crooked cop uh, with, I guess, more gray hat uh, because of his motives for it. Um, rewatched The Cincinnati Kid Steve McQueen, Edward G. Robinson, two Stone Cold Foxes, Tuesday Weld, and uh, and Margaret. Mm-hmm. Uh, it Holds Up as a great film. I think you said you love it, despite it not being very action-oriented, and I agree. Yep. I think we get a chance to see McQueen's acting a little bit more, some of the more subtle stuff he does, and I don't think he gets enough credit with some of the subtle stuff. He does very slight comedic stuff, and right. just, you know, uh, stuff like that. I, I really enjoyed. Uh, one thing I didn't know uh, was that Hal Ashby was the editor on it, so I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. And, and And it's got an amazing theme song by ray charles yeah. Yeah, which, yeah which i'm going to try to get for the show one of these days nice and uh that's it man oh, okay
1: all right all right so uh i watched only i think i watched like five movies but outside of the two we watched for the show i finished off the red cliff uh do uh what is it uh, i guess that would be a double deuce um the uh, part two of the red cliff i didn't like part two as much as i like part one but i still liked it quite a bit um I don't know. The, the part two, the problem is, is that there's a lot of uh, John Woo camera tricks in there. And uh, after part one, where I thought he had gotten away from that a little bit, it's like he came back to it in part two, and he kind of overdid it. And there, was, Especially with this tearing effect he had, this where it would tear right down the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, like it happened every transition, and I don't know what he was thinking of, <laughs> about doing it. It, it. it totally changed the the kind of vibe the movie, the first movie had. So, whatever. I mean, to each their own, but uh, I think it's... Uh, just a little bit weaker than the first part. Uh, so, th- you know, there you go. Still good. Still very good. Still some great action sequences, in it, of course. Uh, I had a rewatch of Shutter Island on uh, Blu-ray. Uh, I liked it more the second time. I think uh, I think it's the kind of film you got to see two or three times to really like it a lot. And uh, I'm not saying I didn't like it the first time. I did like it, but uh, there were some things I didn't like the first time around, but the second time around I liked it a lot more. It's uh, definitely... Uh, a well-crafted film. When you watch it the second time, you can definitely tell how well-crafted it really is. And uh, so, I had a lot of fun watching that again, with uh, dirty-lip Leo and uh, uh, frowning and smiling at the same time Ruffalo, <laughs> 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 and numerous character actors and check cashers. Uh, I watched uh, Sherlock Holmes. The uh, this has been a week of Blu-rays for me. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Jude Law film. Uh, you know I'm a sucker I've, I've said this I think I've said this on uh, well I know I've said it in several places but I think I said this also on uh, uh, Twitter that you know I'm kind of a sucker for Guy Ritchie's aesthetics anyway uh, I'm, maybe maybe the word might be a little bit of an apologist I mean I think if everybody remembers the year before last I put Rock and Roll on my top ten of the year I really enjoyed Rock and Roll I think that was probably as, as good as his crime films get for me Rock and Roll was kind of like the all of that put together And finally came out almost as close to perfect as he could come anyway. And uh, I really liked Sherlock Holmes. I liked it a lot. It was a good time. It was entertaining. It does lag a little bit toward the back end stuff. And, of course, you know, it has its big action set piece, which, you know, you saw coming because they set it up early. But, uh, you know, other than that, I did enjoy it. And I really especially enjoyed kind of the, uh, the relationship between Law and Downey Jr. They had a great camaraderie on screen together. And uh, they worked really well together, I thought, and uh, I kind of liked that it was almost like a little bit of a bromance. I mean, you could you could say it could have almost been homoerotic, but uh, it wasn't really that. It was just really close friends and stuff, and I, I kind of really, I really enjoyed that actually.
2: Yeah, I agree. That was definitely the MVT it was their their buddy chemistry. It really worked well. Mm-hmm,
1: it did also Rachel McAdams, even though she might be attractive to look at for some people and stuff like that, I really
2: thought she was totally wasted that movie. Oh, was she? I talk about doll, man. She was just totally wasted.
1: Well, it was really bad. Man. Just, every time she's on screen, I was like, I really don't care. Yeah.
2: So apologies. I'm chewing a watermelon, watermelon sour head. Ooh, nice. This early in the morning coming correct. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> almost choked on it too. <laughs> I watched um, Moog, the documentary. This is the documentary on um, Andy Moog and uh, his electronic instruments as uh, basically the invention of the synthesizer and stuff like that. This is pretty dry. If, if you like uh, music and you know uh, are interested in electronic keyboards and things like that, then you might want to check this out. If not, you might be quite bored. So... Uh, I enjoyed it just because I'm a, you know, ex musician and I had some fun with it and stuff, but it's not a, it's not a riveting piece of documentary cinema. So, but pretty good. And last but not least, I watched the horseman. This is the Australian revenge film. I know what, uh, Rachel was teasing me cause I misspelled Australian on the, on the thing I was <laughs> spelled with two eyes, Australian, uh, revenge film. Um, I like this film a lot. Uh, I thought it was really, really good. Uh, it's nice and uh, quiet, and then it's, it just kind of pounds you over the head. Uh, it really manipulates you with the revenge angle. And I don't want to give anything away, obviously, but... I mean, it's really manipulative and, and stuff, and that's fun because I think it works, but it's it's one of the best revenge films I've seen in a long time. So when you uh, said
2: that, I can't tell you how happy I was.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really, really good. I mean... Uh, I think that the one of the things that make it work so well is because I'm not real familiar with that lead actor. I'm not familiar with any of the actors in the film, so it feels very real in some ways. Um, it's very frightening in some ways. And uh, also be warned, it is very brutal in other ways. There's some things that happen in this film that uh, had me cringing. Uh, so it's as brutal as uh, some stuff you'll ever see. And the uh, the amazing thing is, is that the director doesn't show everything, and that's what makes it so brutal. I think. I mean, it really. There's there's one moment that I'm just like, oh my god, he didn't just do that. So <laughs> it's uh, and I don't want to talk about it. I'm laughing, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about it on the air. So <laughs> pretty brutal stuff, though, man. Uh, but I do recommend everybody check it out. It's uh, very very good. I know some people don't like it as much as I did, but I liked it quite a bit. If I'd have seen this in 2008 when it came out, it probably would have been on my top ten for that year. Oh, nice. Yeah, it probably would have been. I mean, it's really, really good. It's real quiet, little independent film, and I really liked it a lot. And that's it. That's all i watch, uh, other than baseball and numerous television programs here and there. And, uh, you know, I got two weeks off. Hopefully, I'll get a lot of movie watching in. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That never quite works out like you want it to, oddly. No,
2: it never does.
1: Yeah, I got all this time off. I'm doing nothing. I'm going to watch a ton of movies. I got this stack of DVDs. I got this, blah, blah, blah. Next thing I know, it's time to go back to school. It's time to do this. It's time to go back to work. It's like, I didn't watch a fucking thing. So,
2: you know, that's why. And you're even more mad because (laughs) it's like, it was right under your nose and it just.
1: (laughs) But I think it's, you know, too much free time. You know, I, I want to do everything that I don't have time to do. So I almost get to the point where I get confused as to what I should do. I like, you know, I have all this free time now, so I'm like, okay, well, now I can play this video game that I've been meaning to play. But if I do that, I'm not going to be able to watch these films I wanted to watch. But if I do that, I'm not going to be able to clear off the DVR of the films I have on the DVR. But if I do that, I'm not going to be able to cut the grass.
2: <laughs> yeah, or not get around to that nagging house chore that you've been putting off.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, there's so much, you know. There's always just there's so much to do, so little time. So that's the way it goes. But hopefully, I'll get quite a few more in than normal. Either way, I think that's everything. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then we'll come back. Uh, what do you want to review first here?
2: Uh, let's. See. Why don't we review the nest right. first? Uh, you can take the lead. Yeah,
1: I'll take the lead on the nest. We'll take uh, a break, and we'll be back right after this.
3: This is a great jump film from the Girls on Film Radio. Are you tired of all those vegetarian or vegan podcasts? We just listened to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema had to say about the Girls on Film Radio.
2: A lot of good meat in there. There's a lot of good meat in there uh, that the girls talk about. You yeah, guys got a lot of nice meat over there at the podcast. Yeah, yeah.
4: <laughs> right. So there you have it. The meaty film discussion by meaty women.
3: Listen to Girls on Film Radio. Girls on film.podomatic.com
1: from break so <laughs> uh, uh will that's the first time you've heard the uh, new girls on film radio uh, uh promo what'd you think
2: <laughs> love it
1: <laughs> uh, it made me laugh when i heard it i didn't have any idea what she was going to use she asked me if she could use something from our show and i was like yeah sure whatever
2: it's fantastic
1: it made me laugh it's awesome all right so we are back and um uh, we have to some films to talk about so we're going to talk about the nest first so this was uh Our pick, but I'm going to take the lead on the review, so you want to go ahead and synopsize, and we'll get into it.
2: Let's do it. Okay, so this was our pick uh, for the joint show, and it's uh, 2002's Need the Gip, or The Nest, as it's known here in the English-speaking world. Uh, And I know that I had read this uh, synopsis to my wife, and I don't remember it being overly good, but I'll try. Actually, you know what? Fuck that. Listen, what it essentially is is a French version. Uh, it's, a, it's an homage to Assault on Precinct 13 with a few more wrinkles and elements thrown in. Um, and that's essentially what it is in a nutshell, which is a siege movie uh, with different factions having to come together uh, to um, battle an outside force, relentless outside force. So we picked this film. And like you said, it's one of the first films we talked about, and one that we both feel needs to get more love uh, from people. That inexplicably is not seen very much. So uh, let's hear your thoughts on it, because I haven't really heard in depth your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah.
1: We uh, when we first started talking to each other, uh, one of the first films Will brought up to me was this film called The Nest, and I had seen it. And so, uh, like any movie geek at the time, I had more time, and I said, "Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna check this film out. I'm gonna rent it from Netflix and." Uh, and check it out and watch it and stuff, and uh, I quite enjoyed it. And I could I could understand and see why uh, Will liked it like he did and stuff. And so uh, you know we kind of it kind of went on the back burner. Uh, interesting story behind the scenes. We had act- or I, I didn't. I, Will had actually sent uh, for a Cinema Diabolica show where they were going to do show movies that I believe this is correct. Correct if I'm wrong. Where they were going to do movies that the listeners picked. I think you had picked The Nest as one of your picks for them to cover, right?
2: Yeah, what had happened was they had a thing where if uh, you bought movies to help support the show, they would allow you to program an episode for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as a matter of fact, you're right, this film was one of the films they were going to cover, and The Last Dragon was the other one. Nice. Um, It kind of worked out as a blessing in disguise, though, respectfully to our friends, uh, DZ and and, uh, F-13, because we got to review those two films, which I'm happy we did.
1: Yes, yes. And of course, at the time, you know, when we sent that stuff in, and stuff we didn't have any idea we were going to be doing a podcast together. So I think I sent them, I think I sent them, uh, Lucker the Necrophagus and uh, Rambo, Part Four. <laughs> <laughs> so Part Four of the First Blood uh, Quadrilogy and uh, Lucker the Necrophagus. Only reason why I sent them Lucker the Necrophagus is they had reviewed uh, Necromantic, I believe. And uh, I just I got such a kick out of uh, F13's kind of <laughs> spiel on. Uh, on you know uh necromantic review go back and listen to that if you guys haven't listened to it. That, that review made me laugh and i thought well that what they need is more necrophilia on their show yeah. <laughs> so it's always fun to kind of get those guys riled up over there they make me laugh so all right so let's get into it a little bit uh so this has got a lot of homages in a lot of ways i mean it's kind of a western a little bit it's definitely a siege movie it's got a little bit of uh, night of the living dead in there i mean there's a little bit of everything in there And uh, for really, for genre geeks, I think this is the kind of film that most people will enjoy uh, because it mixes all those things together. Uh, You even get uh, a little moment of uh, smiling for movie geekery when you hear them uh, whistling the Magnificent Seven theme.
2: Yeah, that's one of my favorite things in the film. It's a small moment, but I think it kind of references um, series love of of film, genre film, and it it kind of really... uh, Immediately gives you this film geek um, perspective on how tight these friends are.
1: Yeah, and you know, even though they are, they're basically the uh, the criminals, so to speak. Uh, and I don't think that's giving anything away because that's how they set up the film. Uh, you know, they got this kind of a banditos type of camaraderie, and uh, that's one of the great things about the film. They set up characters in this movie with very little dialogue. It's almost all eye contact and smiles and stuff like that, and I think it's pretty amazing, actually. Uh, it's almost like a silent film in the in the front half, you know what I mean? I don't know if you got that feeling, but that's what I felt like. I felt like it was almost like a silent film. I mean, there's there's dialogue, don't get me wrong, but it's very, very minimal in the first, I think, 40 minutes or so.
2: Yeah, no, you're right, it is, and I think that Siri shows he's a pretty talented visually director from panache, from a panache standpoint, and also from a storytelling standpoint. um, because early on, one of, one of the characters I like best in the film, played by Pascal Gregory, um, was his name Louis? The, yeah, Louis. Um, we can see that uh, he has some kind of emotional skin in the game when he becomes involved in something in the film. Um, not Maybe not directly, but we can see him look at a picture and we kind of assume that based on that picture, something's happened uh, as opposed to us being banged over the head, you know. Siri has enough faith in his visual, uh, his his ability to tell a story visually instead of through exposition.
1: Right, right, and uh, the head's going to love that you use the word panache.
2: <laughs> oh, that's right, because he he called uh, called us out for panache. No, 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 it was pastiche.
1: Oh, it was pastiche. He called miles. He called miles out for pastiche. Oh, that's, right, that's right. That's right. He might he might call us up and get us for panache.
2: Yeah, I think he's I, he, he's probably going
1: to If he's not he's going to now possibly because I just brought it yeah. up. <laughs> Either way, <laughs> the over <Orville. laughs> homage <The> scene. <mise-en-scene. laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Um anyway, uh yeah, I think that he does a good job with that. this setting up, you know, and he does it with editing and pacing and you know, very minimal dialogue and stuff, and I think that's really the genius of the film because the film it's not an original concept at all, and like you said, it's kind of an homage to, uh, and that is a legitimate use of the word homage. It kind of is an homage to Assault on pre Pre-Seek Thirteen, uh, in some ways, and but yet I still, like I said, I, f- I felt like there was some, uh, like you know, all great siege movies. They all kind of rip each other off. There's a little bit of Night of the Living Dead, which is essentially a siege movie um, slash zombie movie, obviously, but you know, you get some great feel from that too here because the characters that are uh, taking siege on this warehouse that they end up in. Uh, we never really get to know them. They're kind of just others, and they could—you could very easily see, you know, zombie-type behavior. Out of that. I mean, obviously, they're not zombies, but you could easily see that because we don't ever get to know any of those characters. They're, see, I think they're just yeah, we, we characters nothing, with but, the the night goggles. Which those night goggles freak me out, by the way. I think it's a great visual touch that you see those goggles real quick, and you just know it's somebody you don't want to fuck with.
2: Well, it's a fantastic uh, thing to set up the faceless. Uh, villains in the film. It's funny, I thought I saw a flying bug just fly by me, ironically. <laughs> uh, but they take what Carpenter did in the original Assault, which is there's, I think, the one or two scenes with the gang being shown, which is the, the infamous ice cream-eating scene, um, as well as a few other things. And they take, he takes it to the next level, where we don't see one face of one of the bad guys. Um, like you said, they all wear those red night-vision goggles, and you really do get the sense of kind of this hive of of wasps attacking, or, or just something. It, it's not really human because there's no human flourishes or touches given to the villains, which I think is great because they got enough characters for you to get behind and worry about uh, without introducing the bad guys uh, as being fleshed out.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't want uh, to. It would be easy to talk about the opening scenes of the film, the opening kind of montage that they kind of throw in there. I don't want to talk about it too much, though, because it kind of gives the whole film away if I talk about it. I mean, if you watch the film, it wouldn't give anything away. But if you talk about it, I think you start to kind of give the whole plot away. So the way they set it up with the kind of uh, metaphor, what they're going for there, what he's going for. So. Oh, right, right. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to really talk about it because I'm afraid I'll give away too much and I want people to enjoy the film. Uh, we get the return of the mask that we hate, the uh, skin tone mask. Uh
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I knew one of us was going to bring that up.
1: (laughs) The infamous uh, mask from the 70s and from Alice Sweet Alice. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So many uh, movies with this mask that I can't stand.
2: (laughs) The worst thing is it's not even one guy. It's like five or six people in these translucent masks doing a heist.
1: Yes. (laughs) It bothers me so much. Um, uh, I can see why, you know, Hollywood wanted Suri for the uh when they when they uh, called him up uh, to uh to do the Bruce Willis vehicle hostage. Now, Hostage is not a good movie, but uh if you see it 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 has style. Uh so you see that siri kind of brought some of his style to Hostage. There's some some great shots in Hostage and there's some great moments in Hostage, but it's a very it's a very below average film. It's very much a uh well, it's just a Bruce Willis vehicle. And it's just, you know, it's just there for entertainment. It's not one of his best films, and, you know, that's just the way it is. But it's also, by the way, I don't know, you've never seen it, have you?
2: Which What's that? The
1: Hostage. You've never seen
2: that, right? Oh, no, no, I have seen it. Okay. I hate it. And yes. that was probably where my, my hate for Ben Foster came from. Yeah, 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 that's right. You
1: don't like him. Uh, it's basically a Siege film, too, in a lot of ways. So I guess they felt like they were kind of pigeonholing this guy <laughs> immediately. Like, well, we got the Siege movie. Oh, yeah, by the way, this guy made a pretty good Siege movie. Let's bring him over. You know, so
2: <laughs> it's it's just such a shame. You know, I have to think there had to be a lot of interference. Like I remember hearing, I don't remember where I heard this now, um, but when John Woo came over here, was it maybe on *Stranger vs*. But I can't remember where I heard this. But when John Wu came over here uh, to make a film, I mean, John Woo is a, is a legendary director. They had to have they felt like they had to have Sam Raimi babysit him. Yep. Yep. This is after Wood had been in the game and revolutionized action films, so I can only imagine the interference and handling that Siri had uh, after making the nest and coming over to do an American film.
1: Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, you watched Stroker versus *Spunner* because they reviewed *Hard Target* and uh, they talk about that. Yeah, Sam Raimi had to be there because the studio wasn't going to give him money. I mean, Sam Raimi is basically responsible for bringing or getting John Wood to come over, but at the same time, the studio's like, "Look, we'll bring this guy over, but uh, you got to watch him because." Uh, you know, we don't make those kind of movies over here. And, of course, there's an infamous uh, hard target. There's an infamous John Woo cut out there somewhere, uh, nefariously, you can get a hold of. Uh, yes. Slightly, actually more slight than slightly different than the original cut, of the hard target that came out. Again, that's always the case. I mean, I don't think that, you know, European or foreign filmmakers come over here. I don't think that they have much choice in what they do. Uh you know, if they want to make movies in Hollywood, they kind of got to make what Hollywood wants them to make if they want to make films here. And if they have some hits, they might get to do what they want to do. But if they don't have any hits, then you know, they're kind of just, you know, workmen for hire and I imagine they come cheaper, so it's probably just a business decision at that point. I think point.
2: it's a, so I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, I'm saying that's is, you know, it, I think it's just a business decision. They just grab these guys that, you know, don't have any proven... With John Woo, it's a different situation because he was a proven filmmaker before he came over, but with suri it's it's obviously a lot like they do where they grab these guys that are up-and-comers and they bring them over to make a cheap action movie or not a cheap action movie, an expensive action movie, but they have more control that way because they're not going to let the filmmaker do what he wants to do, right? So, you know, it's, it's just a business thing. It's a shame, but at the same time, it's that's, you know, Hollywood's, they're not going to change that model, I can tell you that.
2: It's business, but I think this controlling to the nth degree stacks the deck against why they brought the director over in the first place. I mean, look at this the studio system in France or Hong Kong or wherever it was that you've brought this director from and understand the conditions they worked under. Um, By completely locking that down and stacking the deck, you're not only being nearsighted to control everything and micromanaging, but you're not letting this director do what you brought him over for, which means instead of having three or four... Solid money-making films. You're going to get one mediocre film, and they're going to go back to France or Hong Kong because of being discouraged by the Hollywood system. So, I think it's it's a it's almost like this paranoia and overzealousness of wanting to control it and do things the Hollywood way that I think ends up souring a lot of filmmakers, and it's a shame. Yeah. Because yeah. we could see a lot more great genre films from world directors uh, if they sort of loosen the reins a bit and just had some faith for once.
1: Yeah. Yeah, if, if they did, but I think the only reason why you'll never see him do it is that if they put them on these big, big movies, which is unfortunately kind of the model they went with, which, uh, you know, people like Michael Bay and stuff is, you know, he kind of comes from that, making commercials and videos, and then they throw big movies at him, and you know, he has hits, and now he has control, but, you know, he's done the same thing, he's brought people in, and the music video directors, commercial directors and stuff, and then he has control of them, and... And, uh, you know, that's what it ends up being. And then you get the guys like, uh, I'm trying to think of this one guy. Who, whoever the guy was that did Con Air is a great example of a uh, of a, uh, commercial and music video director who had no control over this big movie he was making. I was basically told, given notes for everything.
2: <laughs> I think it's ridiculous because if you look at a lot of these films, they cost, you, you and I have talked about this with South Korean films, etc. Maybe they cost 10, 20, 30 million if you're that worried about all the money you're investing then give them 20 or 30 million and put it out at a time, don't make it a tentpole film, yeah. that's the problem you're, yep. you're putting this tremendous pressure on it, put it out in the fall put it out near Christmas, put it out you know, at a time when maybe it can be counter-programming for more family or serious stuff like the fall or Christmas and and allow that to go instead of Okay, we got two hundred million bucks into this. Then give him twenty million. Let him make the film he can make over here with your people. Like
1: fuck. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, I just don't.
1: I don't. I don't know if Hollywood's ever going to do that. I know we've kind of gotten off on tangent here talking about it, but I mean, Suri's a good example. He came over here. He made Hostage. It had some nice visual flourishes and stuff, but it's just a very mediocre, to less than mediocre Bruce Willis vehicle. Not even one of his better films. One of his better B films, and. You know, I mean, they, they. I think they saw something. They saw a Siege movie. They saw this, and they saw. Oh well, you know, this guy, the Nest. You know, we got to deal with him. Let's uh, let's bring him over cheap and and stuff like that. And of course, he ended up going back and and going back to France and making movies. And I think he made another movie over there, which I haven't seen, but I've heard good things about.
2: Yeah, that one, Intimate Enemies. I want to see. I've never seen it. Yeah.
1: So uh, to get back on topic here, you know, we they, he sets up things very well. He sets up not only all of the warehouse space very well. With the uh, the acrobat character, the kind of parkour type character, as you said last night, he, uh, he sets all that up very well, uh, gives you a real nice sense of space and how everything's going to work for the whole rest of the film, just in very little shots, very simple shots. And uh, he also sets up a storm in the background, which comes into great effect, which is very rare in Hollywood nowadays that they use lightning to good effect. I uh, know. <laughs> I mean, lightning in, in movies is almost a joke. We all know that uh, when lightning flashes, it doesn't make a thunder noise at the same time. But it's, it's, a, it's become the age-old joke that, you know, if lights flash, it makes thunder at the same time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Just the, the weirdness. But, uh, I mean, maybe it does make noise at the same time if it hits directly on you or right next to you. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been hit by it. Uh, knock on wood. And uh, hopefully I never will. But I've been pretty close, and it still there's a delayed sound. Um but uh, he sets it up pretty well with the uh, the way it uh, flashes and he uses it for almost like a strobe effect there's so much I can talk about in the way the actions set up and there's a lot of great scenes with uh, the way the action set up and stuff uh, I don't want to get into too much of that because I think that's where the enjoyment comes from the film the enjoyment in this film comes from the siege and from the uh, from the camaraderie of the bandits the original bandits and I think that you know, there's these great moments, and then, then you get this other guy that works there, works the night shift in the thing in the uh, warehouse, and he, he's kind of like a father figure slash, you know, badass. or I should say slash reluctant badass. Uh, there's just there's these, these these moments like that that are pretty great, and I don't want to get it like I said. I don't want to get in too much. I just think that they they do a great job of, you know, the style is there. It's obvious that Suri has talent, and then the the way he sets up the emotional impact of things that happen is pretty ingenious because you really don't really ever get to know anything about the character's personal life except for a couple little moments here and there Mm -hmm. but they're just enough for you to care Mm -hmm. about the character like there's the girl who talks about the other girl having a kid and she says yeah i have one too and then they, they say something about the dad and she doesn't say anything and then she says oh yeah well i raised mine by myself too and and then that's all they say. And then, so that immediately gives you some skin in the game for the the young African-American. Well, an African-American, I guess, wouldn't be the right word. I guess uh, <laughs> whatever, you know, for she's French. So I don't know what, what the right, proper way to say that is. But anyway, she, you get some skin in the game with her. You got another character who's kind of a snake who you talked about your wife not liking, Salim. And he has some, he is a snake throughout the film. and then But then you get some redemptive value from him you get some great moments with another guy who likes to wear the uh, kind of a bulletproof uh, humongous mask from uh, I,
2: <laughs> from uh, from Road Warrior <laughs> and it's awesome cuz he's got a humongous mask and the John Waters pencil thin mustache <laughs> yes yes
1: that actor has played a lot of i think i've seen him in quite a few american films as like a character actor yeah, he looks uh, familiar richard samuels is his name let me see here let me look through his filmography real quick because uh, I know I've seen him in something else. Well, first of all, he was uh, the guy that uh, uh, Eli Roth hit with a bat in
2: *Inglorious Bastards*. Oh wow, he looks so different in his profile picture to what he looked like in the film. Yeah, yeah. But he was like, he, he was that guy that Eli Roth hit with the bat. Oh my, yeah, in *Inglorious Bastards*. That's yeah. crazy. Not, in ho- did you say hostile? Uh, no, I said *Inglorious Bastards* the first. Time. I think I did. Uh, who knows? I, you, I can't remember. You said hostile? That's <laughs> why I was like hostile. Yeah, in *Inglorious Bastards*. That's right. When when uh, the bear Jew comes out of the tunnel. <laughs> yes.
1: And he was also in Casino Royale. That was the other thing I saw him in. Uh, but he's been in some other things. He's just an old character actor, but he's got a great face and uh, nice. kind of this really defined uh, bone structure to his face. got a really great face. He really does. He's got a total bad guy look. <laughs> but uh, in this film, he's not really so much a bad guy. But anyway, oh, and of course he's going to be in Sniper Reloaded, the new Sniper film, which,
2: has that got Tom Berenger in it? No, no, that's a Billy Zane one. <laughs> nice, the Zane. <laughs> It's, nice. it's interesting. He did another film with Til Schweiger that was at TIFF called... Uh, I think it's... Let me just make sure it is. Yeah, it's the one with Til Schweiger where he plays a runner who loses a leg, I think, hmm. called uh, Phantom Schmers. Okay. Interesting. But anyway, we're talking a lot about Richard Simmel here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's nobody really... Character actor... I
1: mean, actor-wise, it's a lot of uh, faces that most people are not going to be familiar with. Uh, I think, anyway. Excuse me. There's going to be a few that you see here and there that you might be familiar with. Maybe if you're a world cinema like junkie, you might notice a few faces. But I I really didn't notice hardly anybody except Richard Samuel. And I really honestly didn't put two and two together with Inglorious Bastards and him until this morning. So neither did I. (laughs) No idea, man. So there you go. Uh, So, you know, I I really don't have I mean, I have a lot to say about this film, but I, I want people to enjoy it. And one of the main reasons why we picked it is, is our hopes that people will check it out more. It is available on Netflix Instant Watch uh, for those of you in the States in uh, HD, is the way I watched it actually, streaming HD. Nice. And uh, it was fun to watch it again. And uh, I'll kick it over to you and hear what you think. Because actually, we've talked about this film, but we've never talked about the film in detail to each other. So let's hear what you got to say about
2: it. Well, uh, I just wanted to run through the cast very quickly. Nadia Faris, who plays the, the lead um, police woman role. She's beautiful, it mm-hmm. should be said. Yeah. Um she, was in, that, she was in that slasher film from Australia called Storm Morning, which I haven't seen. Oh, I have that. I've never seen it. I got a wow, if she's the lead in that, then maybe I'll really check it out soon. Uh and Sammy Nasiri, who plays Nasser, um, he's a pretty big star from what I know in um in uh, France. I know when the film first came out, I did, you know, like we, we tend to do as movie nerds, we'll go through and look at what other things, you know. Uh, movies other people have done, and he did, you remember that film that Jimmy Fallon did with um, Queen Latifah? Yes, I know exactly which film you're talking about. (laughs) Taxi, right? That's the one? Yes. Um, He was in the original French one, which is supposed to be much better and be more of a good action comedy, and it's got Marianne Cotillard and him in it.
1: Yeah, he was actually in all four Taxis.
2: Yeah, so they're supposed to be much better films. Um, maybe one day I'll check them out. But he uh, he's pretty good. I
1: think uh, uh, Luc, Luc Bassan's involved in those somehow.
2: Yeah, he has either directed or produced them. Okay. Um, you know, the cast, it clearly is uh, very much a, a local French cast. Mm-hmm. But there you get a solid bunch of uh, French working actors. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I know uh, Pascal Gregory was in La Vie Rose with Marianne Cotillard. And a few other things, uh, but anyway. So it's it's really yeah, like you said, a French working cast. But um, this film, one of the things I think that's a shame is people talk about the French New Wave from a genre standpoint. And I mentioned this when we we called OTC. This film doesn't get mentioned alongside those films. This film shows to me that you know uh, France can do outside of even horror genre film as well as anyone.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, uh, horror films are what they kind of been known for. Uh, as of late, but there's a couple of French filmmakers that make these kind of okay. other genre movies that are just as good, if not better, than some of the horror output they put out in the last few years. And it's kind of weird, though. It's kind of weird that the the action and other type of genre films haven't got the same kind of attention. I guess because maybe I don't, I don't sensationalism know
2: sensationalism of horror. Maybe yeah, I
1: don't know that has to be what it is, really. Because you know the I'm, French horror movement was so, especially in the 2000s now, and we're getting to the you know this is basically the end of this decade. I mean, they really have owned the
2: horror genre this decade. No nope, one's uh, even close, man. Yeah. They got, like, the, I think the gold, silver, and bronze, probably, or at least the gold and silver.
1: And I think because they've owned that so much, other stuff's been overlooked.
2: But look at District 13. That's a pretty fantastic little film. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm sure if we sat down and, and looked at it, there's a bunch of them. The, the, you know, just recently, the uh, the films we covered with uh, Vincent Cassel, the Marine film, I mean, there's been a lot of good French output that I think it's overlooked in, in lieu of, you know, the horror stuff, which is absolutely fantastic, but they don't ignore this stuff. I mean this shows that a French film an action film can be slick have great production values be well shot all the technical stand all the technical kind of uh, things for there and, and still run with the Hollywood film so yeah
1: I mean it looks like a Hollywood film I mean it's got the yeah. wet it's got the wet floors the shiny veneer it's got nice red doors I mean I know that sounds like a stupid thing to say but trust me if you see the film you'll know what I mean I mean everything's real nice and clean and and distinctable and he really does a good job. Uh, of, like I say, setting up all this stuff, and it's very. Yeah, I can see why Hollywood came to him. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I can see why they wanted him to come over and try to make this Bruce Willis movie.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Because it seemed, you know, paid by numbers. I mean, it was a slam dunk. This guy was going to be able to, yeah, to do. do it. Because Evidently, he made he a Hollywood, <laughs> a good Hollywood film outside of the Hollywood system. So, yes, yes. Um, we talked about him, his strength visually, and like we said, I think again, visually, his ability to tell story without needless exposition. Uh, one of the things I like is there's a criminal in this film who's being transported, I don't want to say much more than that mm-hmm. uh, but we immediately know how dangerous this guy is because he's got a, ba- like a black bag on his head, he's got ankle shackles, he's got handcuffs, he's got one of those stiff neck collars almost like a dog collar on a broom handle
0: mm-hmm.
2: it gives us instant credibility to, as to how dangerous this guy is, so you're kind of like, whoa man like, you know, this is serious <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, and if, you know, the first time I saw it I was like, well, how dangerous could this dude be? You know, this Christopher Lee slash, I don't know what, looked like some guy out of a Bergman film type look.
2: Slash, like, Colombian (laughs) kind of drug lord in a white linen suit. And then you have a great moment where he gets a hold of somebody and you find out just how dangerous he really is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. But see, in most films, you know know how his character would have been explained? He would have been shackled up. And there would have been the two or three cops in the back of the wagon. Mm Mm-hmm talking about him yes. and how he did this and how he did that. You don't need that with this.
1: No, you don't. In this one, you get an even greater moment, which I think is the two kind of SWAT guys moving him and one tickling the other's face with like a, a wheat
2: straw he's got yeah. in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is pretty funny and pretty annoying uh, at the same time.
1: But there's all kinds like of... It. That's what I'm saying. I think that's some of what a serious strength with this film is all these little moments. There's these little smiles. between, And they could be misinterpreted as homoerotic in some senses. I understand that. Although I believe the the two bad guys... I believe They're brothers. Uh, I don't know if they
2: never ever say that. Oh, Santino and Nasser? Yeah, I just think they're really good friends that yeah. that did time in the pen together, and because of
1: mm-hmm. because uh, yeah, because there's a great moment where they you know our time in the sun that that is said, and I, I can say that out of context because nobody knows what it means. But uh, I I got the feeling they were brothers, and then sometimes I would think they were friends. But you're right. I mean, the relationship is one of of uh, let's just say it's one of brotherly love. Yeah. And it would totally. be easy to misinterpret it as homoeroticism. Uh, but thankfully, they don't go that route. I mean, you could do that. I mean, if you didn't know what you were looking at and you just kind of were looking at it like if you had the volume down, you're just kind of watching it. and You see these kind of wanting looks between these two guys. You could do that. But then, again, that's most action movies. I mean, you know, people under pressure and stuff and, and things like if you turn the volume down. You'll uh, you'll discover pretty quickly that most things look homoerotic with the way they look at each other, but uh, yeah. I think it's pretty I think it's pretty good the way their relationship is. I mean, it's a true emotional relationship between two guys.
2: Yeah, and like I said, they went through the fire together, so you know this this certainly they forged a bond in that. Um, one of the things I, I talked about Nadia Farah as being beautiful before, but I think even more importantly than her being beautiful is I absolutely believe her as. The tough can handle anything cop in this film because Western films don't usually get it right uh, with having believable female action stars. It very rarely happens. uh, And I don't know if that's partially chauvinism and partially, uh, you know, just the way that it's done, but I absolutely believed her as being able to handle her shit in this film.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this off the air. I'm not the biggest fan of the kind of uh, male filmmaker turning the female into this uh, badass i think sometimes that comes off as hey let's give the women a chance and blah 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 and, and whatever i mean it works sometimes kill bills a great example and others but i don't i don't you know pursue these films that much the woman as badass action star no. the reason why i think it works with nadia Ferris in this film is because she doesn't do anything flashy everything seems real Yep, and that makes it much more much more realistic to me than like uh, I mean Uma Thurman obviously is way over I mean that's way just ridiculous but that whole film as far as you know it's it's almost got that you know Tarantino was going for that kind of exploitation vibe with the badass female force you know kind of like what uh, Uma Thurman's character was talking about a little bit with her TV show in Pulp Fiction it's what it almost felt like and you know this is the the bad thing that happened with that female force they all split up blah 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 but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood filmmakers and sometimes other, you know, Cynthia Rothrock-type films, things like that, I mean, they kind of take it to a different level uh, with that. And sometimes it's very unbelievable, which I think is a problem. Uh, But I think it also might just be that some dudes are turned on by chicks doing stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, you get those uh, cat fight videos that used to be for sale on the back of Pro Wrestling Illustrated.
1: (laughs) And, And it is easy to come off as chauvinistic when you say that, like badass chicks. I'm not really a fan. But it's not that, it's just I think that the way it can work but you have to have somebody behind the camera and somebody who wrote the script who has to know how to approach that as more a statement than, you know, Tomb Raider.
2: Oh, for sure because that's really about the kind of the mouth breathing uh wet dream as opposed to a female as functional action star. That's really about the 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 Barbie doll action series brought to life whereas right, right. To get a real flesh and blood female action star is different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, And you know who she reminds me of across between uh, Asia Argento and Michelle Rodriguez a little bit? Yes. Actually,
1: yes. Uh, With a little bit, there's a little bit of actually Angelina Jolie in there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. My wife said that actually.
1: Yeah. So she's definitely got all three of those. Maybe Asia Argento is probably, that's probably the closest. I'm looking at her picture right now. And yeah, Asia Argento is where I go immediately.
2: Yeah. Asia she's the, but she's she's great in the film. I really love her in the film. Yep. Um again, something that I think is borrowed from Carpenter. Uh, I, w- I don't want to spoil it, but there's a scene with some ice cream early on in the film that shows you all bets are off and we see how ruthless and brutal the the quote, the real bad guys are in the film. Mm-hmm. Much like in this one there's a brutal execution of a father whose kid is in the car dressed like Howdy Doody beside him.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And uh <laughs> it's you know, again, just shows how brutal they are, and I love moments like that in the film because you really know that the stakes are going to be high, and it's not going to be one of these you know shoot them in the leg things. Like people are shooting to kill, and they're gonna they're ruthless. And they're gonna stop, but nothing uh, to to get what they want, which I won't get into what it is. Right. Um. I, another thing that I think Siri does well is he shoots high impact stuff well. Like there's a few car accidents in the film that are shot really well. Hmm. Hmm. You know stuff like that, that that can look clumsy if it's not done well, but he does it really well. Um, just the the brutality and the speed of uh, no problem. Um, just okay, sorry, I meant to say the brutality and the speed of this 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 truck and the siege on the truck and uh, just the the whizzing of bullets, which I think we get done to great effect in this film because there's so many examples in this film. A lot of time when this many bullets are flying, you don't really get a sense of danger or a sense of how precarious a situation it is but with this people are getting hit by bullets there's so many bullets flying that it really every time you get one of these kind of assaults on on a group of people it really feels that anything can happen because you know it just it feels that way and he conveys that very well i feel
1: Mm -hmm. no he definitely does again that goes back to that thing a sense of space i mean he really does it very well Mm because there's there's a moment where there's this assault of bullets and it, it goes on for about five minutes Oh, and, yeah. And it's just craziness for all this time and stuff. And, uh, but yet, he while that's going on, he's setting up all the different set pieces in the film.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Just a sense of anytime, anywhere, someone could get hit and killed by one of these bullets. So does it quite well. The, the sound is done to great effect. One thing I like that, you know, we talked about this kind of being the, the best homage to Assault on Precinct 13 um, is that, He takes the original template, and again, that was real bravo, we know that, but I'm just going to say you know, more recently Assault, um, is that he takes that and adds a few wrinkles to it. Like, for example, there's one more wrinkle added in terms of factions in this film than there was in Assault on Precinct 13. Yes. You know, which again, he's adding something a little bit different to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you touched on this, just a great ensemble with several solid characters that you're invested in, just enough. Yep. Right. It's never at the at the um, detriment of action in the film. Right. So, I mean, I, I looked at my my the timer on the DVD player. I was an hour and ten minutes in. I'm thinking, Wow, man. I mean, the time's just flying. This film's very pasty. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, it very, is very very pasty. Um, you know, there's a pretty good. Mo- there's some pretty brutal violence in the film too. Not just your standard gunshot stuff. Like there's. Um, uh, a limb tossed in a window. Uh, there, there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, it's it just it's done very well, very brutally. Um, we get some infighting back and forth, which is usually part for the course of these films, but it kind of adds to the tension of. You know, uh, are all these different groups going to be able to to work together on this? Because there's just different interests at play uh, in situations like this. Right. right. Um, great use of shadows in this film a lot Mm -hmm. a lot of times when shadows are used quite well in these films again talks about it's just a testament to series strength as a visual filmmaker Um, I like that he stuck with realistic things in this film for example one of the main characters the guy that looks kind of like Sean Penn and uh, Jim Caviezel um, what's his name here Uh, Benoit Magimau Santino Mm -hmm. yes He gets shot in the leg. This isn't a spoiler. He gets shot in the leg early on, and he's got a limp throughout the film. Most films would have abandoned that limp about 10 minutes later. Yes, exactly. I like that he has the limp throughout the whole film. Um, You know, another thing I kind of picked up on as a genre film nod was, do you know the scene when the two guys from the two different factions, they're going to get in the truck, and they're going to take off outside while all the shit's kind of... the, The storm's going to hit on them outside, basically. Right, that to me was a reference to *Return of the Living Dead* when uh, when the punk rocker character and the Gouler character character are trying to get in the ambulance and take off. That was kind of seemed like a nod to that to me.
1: Oh, yeah, I-, I could see that. I could see that.
2: Um, wow, my notes were really messy. Uh, I love when uh, there's a moment when the bad guys are just flooding in to a place and. But just you get a good sense of numbers with him, and just constant, this incessant, just flooding in the doors, and you, you really start to feel from the character standpoint, we're fucked. This is so we're in a bad spot here. Yeah, you know, done very very well.
1: Especially when they do the second one, and you start to feel like, okay, well they're just, oh they're overmatched. There's you know they're they're totally fucked. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, that's not exactly. You know, giving anything away, it just you know you get that sense, and he, he does that very well. He sets that up very well. I mean, you would think the first time around, you would think they were fucked, but they really, by the second time around, he shows a lot of movement without gunfire, and you think, oh wow, they're they're real. They really are fucked.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a really, I mean, this this is kind of par for the course with with a lot of genre films, but there's a great heroic altruistic moment by a, a great character in this film that is uh, highlighted by kind of an emotional. Just a gesture on someone's face when they're underneath a blanket. Mm -hmm. I really love that moment in the film. I mean, it kind of pumped my fist and then it was kind of... It it was a sad moment as far as these films go, but it was done really well and I really liked it. It it had the payoff you were looking for from an emotional and action standpoint. Right, right. Uh, So I enjoyed that. Um, As always, I love when you've been through the fire with a bunch of characters in the film and they close out with the credits with the flashback of the characters as they're, they're laying their, their things over. I just, again, it kind of, you kind of smile as you think of what you've been through with the characters in the film. So I like that they do that in this film. Yes. Um, and Rupert, a long time ago, and I us about our favorite films that, that happened over the course of the one night. Well, here's one for you. Yeah. Uh, um, and one thing I do want to say is, as an aside, the back of this DVD, it's so fucking awful. They describe it as Transporter meets SWAT meets Die Hard. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, anyway, those are all my notes. Let's turn it over to you.
1: That's a good way to sell a movie on keywords. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is what it is. All right, so, uh, My Maker Break is going to be, we talked about it a little bit, it's the second assault, uh from the outside force. Uh, I really love that moment. I mean, you're really, by that time you're already behind the characters and behind the, you're into the story quite well. And then this starts to happen. and you know, your blood pressure starts to go up and you start to get behind it even more. So really good stuff. My, uh, MVT is going to be Siri. Obviously the guy has talent. Uh, he's an older gentleman, actually. I think he's 50 years old now. Um, so, you know, he hasn't really had a lot of films, but again, I want to see his, uh, the one film we talked about and he's got another one he's working on. So, should be interesting to check out as much work as he can get done in his career. Hopefully, he can get some more of these type of films done. Uh, but this is the, this being this and Hostage are the only two films of his I've seen. So I don't uh, I haven't seen the other one. So I'm looking forward to that. It's actually got a higher overall rating than this one. So I'm gonna have to be and I'm very interested to see it. My score for this film is a <clears throat> pardon my uh, that's the uh, sour watermelon sour patch kid things whatever <laughs> speaking there. Uh, my score for this film is an eight out of ten. I think this is a very solid action movie. Uh, overlooked, definitely. Again, I'd never even heard of it until you mentioned it. I, I probably would have stumbled upon it eventually uh, because of uh, familiarity with Suri and Hostage and stuff. Sometimes I'll rewatch something and I'll see a director's name and you know, I'll pull up the old IMDB and stuff. And But uh, I'm glad that I stumbled upon it as early as I did. So I'll give it an 8 out of 10. So i hear what you got to say.
2: Okay. Excellent. I do want to say the guy that played the main bad guy, look at his filmography. He was in The Godfather... Uh, he did a bunch of Italian genre films in the 70s, so very cool stuff there. But uh, my make-or-break is just the, the cranked-up action and how Ciri is is able to kind of make each scene seem more desperate uh, and action-packed than the last. Really well done. My MVT is the camaraderie uh, and, and of, of the main characters. I could very easily go with Ciri because, truthfully, he, he brings it all together skillfully mm-hmm. with a skillful hand. But I just love that when you get a film like this where you actually care about the characters and it's not just the the stock uh, characters where you're just kind of going from point A to point B just for the action. You genuinely have, you know, uh, some care for these characters. Uh, my score is the exact same. It's an 8 out of 10. I totally agree with you. Uh, I think it's a rock-solid genre film that I think everyone should check out uh, and should enjoy. It doesn't reinvent the wheel, but what it does, it does quite well, and adds a few new wrinkles to the genre with a visual flourish or yeah. panache.
1: Oh, yeah, panache. There you go. Over the old, the old visual pastiche. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, that is our review of the Nest. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and talk about Ilsa, she wolf of the SS. So a little bit different in this film. We'll uh, we'll be back right after this. <laughs>
4: want to tell the world about that crappy big budget flick or get people to buy that barely noticed book or cd that rocked your world can't quit talking about pop culture then become a blogger at one of the fastest growing review sites online popsyndicate.com is searching for people who want to blog about movies dvds books comics anime music tv shows and more check it all out at popsyndicate.com and email the editor for details popsyndicate.com your virtual pit stop for all things pop culture i <laughs>
1: We're back from break. Now, the interesting thing is is that uh, before we said we'd take a small break, but if you guys had any idea how long the break was, you'd, you wouldn't believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we had some Benny Hill moments. It'd be ever. Good times, It'd though. be ever. All right, so we're going to jump into Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS from 1975. This is what Bill and Chris picked for us to cover for the joint shows, and um, the tagline is, of course, the most dreaded Nazi of them all. And the plot goes as such. Ilsa is an evil Nazi warden at a death camp that conducts medical experiments. Um, I guess I could read the rest, but her goal is to prove that women can withstand more pain and suffering than men, and therefore should not be allowed to fight on the front lines. So that's kind of what it's about. But That and a lot of boobs. uh, A lot of boobs
2: and a lot of bush.
1: Yeah, a lot of it. Matter of fact, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. All right, uh, let's hear what you had to th- say of Ilse. and I know this isn't the first time you've seen it, as it's not for me either. Any genre fan worth his weight in gold uh, has seen or at least heard of Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS. So let's get let's get talking about
2: it. Yes, uh, interestingly, though I know this is what you and I had thought was a trilogy, but I think it's actually a quintilogy, or if that's even a word. I'm maybe making words up now as we go. <laughs> yes. Um, I like the other films to varying degrees. I like, um, uh, which one is it? The one that's in Montreal, and and she's running a brothel. Is it Cypress type I can't, the Siberian Tigress one. I think I can't remember. I like it more than others, maybe because I'm Canadian. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this is clearly the best of them, uh, and it's in that subgenre known as nazi exploitation. which I think, truthfully, as I get older, I have less interest in. I still think there's some interesting films within this the genre Salon Kitty's very interesting uh, Salo is one I've not seen that I want to see same with uh, Lilia Cavani's The Night Porter which uh, mm-hmm. I have coming to me here very soon um, some of the other Italian ones I think are a lot of fun the Mattei ones and you know a few others uh, They're pretty interesting, but, you know, I find the older I get, I don't know if you agree with me, Sammy, but the less interest I have in Nazi exploitation.
1: I think it just, you know, it came and went. I mean, it's it's fun to revisit every now and then, but it's just not a genre that I was ever really into anyway.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think there's certainly some high points, but because of the tastelessness of what they're doing, you walk a tightrope between mm-hmm. campy, fun tastelessness and just out-and-out tastelessness.
1: Yeah, it's, it is a fine line, and then again, and that's what I mean. I mean, every now and then I go back, I mean, I haven't watched a Nazi exploitation film in a long time, and so it was kind of fun to go back and visit one, uh, like Ilsa, uh, but again, after seeing it, uh, I know why I don't really like to watch them that much, because like a lot of these kind of very small genres, like cannibal films and everything, uh, they do walk that fine line, and the films are typically not very good. <laughs> precisely (laughs) that that Um, might be the biggest problem it might not even just i agree with you on the tastefulness tastefulness or whatever tastelessness there we go tastefulness (laughs) Uh, i agree with you on that but also it might be also a combination of factors that typically there's not very many good films in this genre just like cannibal films to me
2: yeah so if you're if you're terribly made and terribly tasteless uh it's usually not a very good combination yes um, but this is one of the, certainly one of the Citizen Kane or the Gum with the Wind of... Uh, yeah, it's one of the gyms. Of exploitation. <laughs> I mean, it's not the high, as far as the the, the exploitation ones go. You know, the Song Kitty is a little more highbrow, the Night Porter to be sure is. But um, yeah, so that's a cycle of films. The, Diane Thorne is, of course, the star. Mm-hmm. I think they discovered her. Uh, she'd done some kind of uh, nudie kind of films, not porn, but you know a lot of these exploitation type films before. Yeah, uh, she worked as a burlesque girl. She's basically Russ Wetmyer. Wow, <laughs> Russ Myers' Wet Dream. uh... Yeah, now pretty much. I mean, she is. I mean, she is an incredibly, incredibly built woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast is, is you know, pretty much made up of. Uh, non-existent acting our, our man George Buckflowers in it and uh, I love that in his IMDB it says he usually plays a homeless man um, <laughs> but in this he plays kind of a sidekick doctor but uh, the thing I wanted to blow your mind about Sammy was Maria Marks who plays Anna, the one of the women that gets brutally tortured mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know whose mother that is?
1: Uh, I do not
2: we just covered one of his movies on the show very recently oh wow I'm looking now. She is the mother of none other than John B. Rappin Hood. <laughs> wow, that is crazy.
1: Now I looked through some of the trivia for this film, but I did not look through that. I'm looking at
2: it now. Wow, that's amazing. That is incredible, man. I never knew that. And all the times I've seen this film, but that's Mario Van Peebles' mother. She only made two Maria films. Mar- wow. Yeah. So amazing. Very interesting stuff. Oh, you know what? Um,
1: you know what? Now, looking at her face and thinking about her, I can see that now.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's she's pretty, but she kind of looks like a combination of Penny Cruz and Elijah Wood. So, and she looks a little bit like uh, <laughs> fucking Mario Van Peebles. <laughs> yes, that too. That's where he gets his prettiness from. Um, th- this film, like a lot of the exploitation films, puts in almost like that uh, warning or or news worthy kind of uh, disclaimer saying. You know, we made this film basically so crimes like this will never occur again. It's kind of that formula of the true story type stuff you see a lot in these films. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it does open pretty fantastically with uh, this kind of classical music and our uh, our, our the, the titular, <laughs> yeah, <that's> unintended, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Ilsa, riding a man for all it's worth. And, mm-hmm. and, I mean, I'm not into blondes, let me tell you, but I love diane thorne you know what's amazing about diane
1: thorne in this film she's only 32 years old in this movie and for some strange reason she looks a lot older than that
2: looks about 45
1: Yeah, she does she really does i mean she didn't she did not age well her body did but her face for some reason it always looked it always looked older than what she was and uh, she's actually naturally a redhead and they gave her the oh. blonde hair obviously here but uh yeah, I mean, she's got a great body. I mean, there's a reason why she was cast and stuff. Not a great actress, uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of loses the German accent uh, on occasion. By on occasion, I mean
2: all the time. <laughs> she does, but I like her conviction. I don't know. I, I didn't notice it as much. Maybe I was hypnotized. Uh, well, yeah, I know what you're doing. I like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I love her conviction at at least trying the German accent more often than some of the other actors in the film.
1: Oh, yeah, there's some other people in it that's even, it's even worse.
2: Doing a, doing a bad accent can hang someone out to dry pretty easily. And she kind of sticks with it. I mean, it wavers, but, you know, like most films like this, when they they, they take place in a foreign language, they'll use a few words. Like in this, they use wunderbar and schnell, which means fast, or das ist gut, you know, they have, the, or aktung, they use, the, you know, the handful of words they know, mm-hmm. and yeah. then the rest is in English and a poor accent. But, right. you know, I love that she opens up the film where she's riding the guy and he blows his load and she goes, it's such a, an ominous sign of things to come. You should have waited. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. Uh, <laughs> Boy, should he have. <laughs> I mean, this film, despite being... It, it's weird because this is a kind of a a hybrid of sexploitation, uh, women in prison, and a gore film. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know it, if this is the progenitor of modern, kind of like uh, S&M, maybe. The leather S&M craze. Uh, I mean, that might have been around before, but it seems like Ilsa's very attached to the kind of militant uh riding crop type of uh you know depravity that involves that kind of porn and that kind of uh you know thing that gets people off not saying it's a bad thing to each their own but i'm just saying uh it seems like this film might have been completely responsible in some ways although i don't know if that's true because this is 75 page
2: was around before this yeah
1: but i mean i'm talking about the nazi elements maybe the military was was betty page Mm -hmm. doing the military elements though
2: uh, i don't know i know the fetishization there's a, a strong subculture of the fetishization of of Nazi regalia mm-hmm. um which you know is it's inexplicable to me but i know that is a, there is a pretty strong contingent of people who are into that mm-hmm. uh the fetishization of it mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know this this i'm sure brought it to the forefront for some people um i have to wonder now having seen this film cuz i hadn't seen it in years if um What's his name? Saeed Jura, uh from Lost. Oh, boy. Said from Lost. Yeah.
1: Naveen uh, in, Andrews.
2: Yeah, Naveen Andrews. That's right. I wonder if his collection of testicles in Grindhouse was a tribute <laughs> to uh, the General's collection of dicks in this film. Yeah.
1: You know what? I was thinking the, the tool The we've come a long way in our castration tools. That looks like yes. a very uncomfortable castrating tool.
2: Oh, does it ever? It kind of looks like it's like a half circle with a lot of jagged edges.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. It uh, it just looked painful.
2: (laughs) Oh boy, does it ever. I will say this, if you're a Star Wars nerd, uh, there's certainly a masturbatory sequence for you in here because there's a Princess Leia lookalike showing a lot of bush. A whole lot. A whole lot. (laughs) Looks like she took one of those honeycombs off her head and put it between her legs, man. I was looking
1: for the missing gumman behind the grassy knoll there (laughs) 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 to keep with the
2: tastelessness. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. It's a tasteless movie, so it's going to be a somewhat tasteless review. I will
1: will Uh, say, though, there's a great scene involving, I think it's the same actress, involving uh, shaving.
2: Oh, yeah, that's great. And my note for that scene is, bush shave. How would you like to be, how would you like that to be your mom? Like, you know, your mom said she worked in movies and you find out she was the one who shaves another woman's bush in a film. Uh, I don't don't even know what to say. I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't want to know. That's for sure.
1: Oh man.
2: Um, Clearly our hero who, who I think uh, makes Steve Railsbeck look like Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, he, he might be one of the worst actors I've ever, I've ever seen in a film. Gregory Knopf. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. plays uh, Wolf, and he's wearing he wears what I like to call the carradine cut pants.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Everyone else is wearing these kind of loose fitting pants, but his you can you know you can pretty much see the the imprint of his cock through his pants. Right, I know, but uh, <laughs> it, you know, and then uh, that leads to a sequence when Ilsa's inspecting all the men, and she has a great line. Where she goes, "You call yourselves men? I see no manhood between your legs." She's <laughs> <laughs> inspecting all the schlong. It's. Uh, <laughs> They're pretty comical. I mean, the film's it's, – it's got a few really good lines in it. Um, like I said, it's very gory, though, like brutally gory, cringeworthy in spots. Like there's a scene where the woman's toes are getting clipped and there's some great sound design there. And, yeah. and a really awful scene, the same woman, she has a white hood over her head and there's two holes for eyes that you can see that like almost like blood tears coming through. Like they've been gouging her eyes or doing something. So it's – uh. It's, it's just interesting how brutal this film is in spots, and it's funny that it, it kind of straddles that line with the titillation of, of the nudity and at the same time stuff that takes you right out of it because of how graphic it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, going back and revisiting and I always forget, and I've seen this film a handful of times, but going back and revisiting it, it's always amazing to me how sleazy it really is, not only just with the nudity but with the the uh the gore uh, just the sheer amount of it and stuff it's pretty it's pretty amazing and i guess maybe this is why friedman got his name off of it maybe he you know was kind of embarrassed about the nazism and and all the it's it, i mean it really is a film of depravity it's not that it doesn't have a spot i think it's important film i think that these films you know like we always say all these films are important it's not you know up to me to say what's high art and what's not but um uh, Obviously, this film is is made for the you know most basic reasons, uh, mm-hmm. you know boobs, blood, and and just you know trash, and and that's fine. It's it, for that it works, and it works just fine for that. But it might be one of the sleaziest films we've covered on the show.
2: Yeah, and we've covered some sleaze, um, like and and there's stuff that when you just think about it, now that I'm a grown man, I just think about the sheer brutality of it. I can't help but think about it because th- this is very loosely based on historical events like when the women are sterilized and they're sent to the barracks to basically be gang raped by the German soldiers and have beer dumped on them. And that just the sound that just that alone is enough. What we see the next scene when it's at the end of the night and there's men with telltale signs that one's got blood smear on his shoulder. One is sleeping. He's got blood in the front of his underwear and you just know it didn't end well for this woman.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah. It just brutal, brutal stuff. Uh, I have to wonder where they found so many well-endowed women. I mean, some of the women in these films have some of the, and I'll be piggish here, some of the greatest breasts I've ever seen in my life.
1: Well, I think if you're going to put women in a film with Diane Thorne, who had great breasts, I mean, that's what she was known for. Uh, Because, you know, she makes a point of showing them any any way she can. Uh, You're going to have to have some other good ones. I know that some of these girls were porn actresses. Yeah. don't know what porn films they were in. Actually, I do know. Let's see here. <laughs> it's like one was in one called "Getting Personal." One was in "A uh, Good Girl, Bad Girl." Hey, hey. Uh, anyway, uh, oh, she was in. Se- oh, okay, Colleen Brennan, who was in one of the films, she was in several installments of the Taboo series, which is notorious for being the mother-son porn type stuff. Oh, wow! <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, they 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 got their people where they needed to get the people, right people to do this kind of stuff. Obviously, yeah. So, okay. that's fair, and I can see what I, Melvin Van Peebles saw so
2: <laughs> yes oh absolutely and i just you know again it may sound piggish but i always marvel at a nice set of breasts when i see them in an old movie like this and i know that sounds piggish but listen i'm a guy i'm a red-blooded male and to see a woman with as majestic a set of knockers as <laughs> thorn and company it really is a sight to behold if I, again if i'm going to be a
1: well i mean just to be honest uh, i mean you're not you're not going to watch this movie just for the fact that you like nazi boots or just for the fact that you like uh, blood i mean if you know, boobs sell. I mean, I'm sorry, but they do, especially to a male crowd. And this film is, you know, aimed at a certain audience. And, you know, boobs and blood and stuff. I mean, this is this is what this genre is. And I think you have to have uh, those kind of uh, elements. And it is nice when the women are nice looking as opposed to some of the stuff we see, which is kind of rough sometimes.
2: Yes, it is. With the old flapjacks, uh, the ski slopes. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's certainly something that someone smarter than me uh, could discuss about kind of from a feminist point of view, how vulnerable Ilsa is behind closed doors to the point of absolute submissiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think further to that, I think it's interesting that, well, firstly, what would a German film or a German-based film be without a golden shower? Uh, Of course. (laughs) Hence, if I'm going to paint with a broad brush uh, and... I think that scene that we're referring to, I'm not spoiling anything here, she has to uh, piss on uh, a superior. And I think that's an interesting commentary on some of the unsavory things people do to cr- climb the corporate ladder because despite all the horrific things she does in this film where it takes part in, the one thing that you see an absolute look of disgust and revulsion on her face is when she has to squat down and piss on someone. Yes. <laughs> like, it's just, it's kind of a, almost, it's she, her face really, she gets a real frown on her face. Yes. Um... I love. There's actually a decent moment of, of acting from Thorne when they're using this electric. Uh, I mean, that's not the right. This, this like, this vibrator that produces an extreme electric current to the woman when when it's inserted. Um, when she puts it in uh, uh, John B. Hood's mother, <laughs> and uh, the moment when you can see Anna's trying to fight it off and Ilsa kind of looks at her and her eyes kind of widen as the current increases and her lips kind of purse out as if to say you know, see, you're going to fucking break, bitch. Like, it's it's a kind of a small thing, but I kind of like that that moment was almost like this confrontational thing with her, like she was going to, you know, she was going to really test her. I like that moment. And I, as an aside, I think it's in, really bizarre that they kind of set Anna up to be Wolf's love interest but that's kind of abandoned. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, she she by all you know, points would be the love interest in the film, would she not?
1: Yeah, you would think so.
2: Yeah, um, there's some great kind of Batman soundtrack moments where it's like, and then like there's a great one when they're talking about making a jailbreak in in one of the bunkhouses, and uh, they're all talking, and then you hear, and the door opens, and Ilsa comes in. It's like I expected Merrily to walk in behind her and go, "I'm here." <laughs> yeah. You know, it was. Uh, i Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what else do I got? I thought there was a, actually one of the more tense scenes beyond just the sleaze and brutality of it, a pretty nasty tense scene when a bunch of the Nazis are having dinner at this long dinner table and one of the women, one of the prisoners is hung up, uh, on a new, in a noose and she's got ice under her feet that's rapidly melting, uh, at which point when they're having their dinner and their, their are and whatever else it is they're eating, uh, the woman's gonna hang herself, and I, I think it had a pretty good moment of desperation there uh, at that time for the film.
1: Yeah, I mean it's almost like the, some, the film's almost in some ways kind of like uh, early torture porn, and yeah, uh, I mean that's really what it is. I mean if you really think about it. So, you know, it was it was interesting going back and watching it and realizing how much torture porn was in there. Like uh, you know, because we, yeah, we see so much of it nowadays, as, as Little William is telling us. You know, yeah, we see so there's too much torture porn nowadays. He's upset with it,
2: as you can hear it's like he's doing his best Axl Rose man he is man welcome to the no 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 needs needs um I love at the end there's a disfigured girl where we get the fantastic reveal of a half face oh yeah and I love that the disfigured girl just kind of fucked the high and mighty legal system she wants some old testament biblical revenge oh yes <laughs> you know, because often these films, it's like the righteous, you know, see them try. You know, that's the harder thing. But I love that she's like, fuck that, man. I want a piece of them. Yes. You know? so I kind of like that. And my last note is um, I wish I I don't know. It wasn't quite a payoff I was looking for. And I don't want to say any more than that. But I love the bloodied, blackened, burned up, broken girl crawling towards Ilsa with everything that she has. And a moment of vulnerability for Ilsa.
1: That was a weird... I have to think that Clive Barker saw this
2: film. as almost like a Hellraiser-type moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty nasty little moment that you're just waiting for a pretty good payoff. It wasn't quite the payoff I was looking for, but (laughs) nonetheless, those are all my notes. Uh, Let me kick it over to you and hear you talk about Thorn and Friends.
1: Yeah, okay, so one of the more interesting things about the Ilsa series is how many people are actually attached to this thing at some point in time. People from as diverse as uh, Ivan Reitman and Roger Corman to Jess Franco, the... Mad genius that makes 90 films a week. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. And Elsa is, a, you know, actually like you said, it's, she, she's actually a Canadian creation. yeah. And it's pretty amazing when you think about that in retrospect and stuff. But uh, I think uh, Reitman was the one that was actually behind uh, Tigers of Siberia, the one you were talking about that you kind of liked. Yep. Uh, I have seen all of them. Uh, I do remember the Jess Franco one being one of the few Jess Franco films I can get all the way through yeah, uh, without <laughs> wanting to pull my eyes out uh but you know hey it is what it is uh this one is a little bit more unique in some ways uh, obviously it's the best film for me of the th- i'm not saying it's the one i'm entertained the most by but it for me it's like maybe the purest film the other one just seemed like i mean i know this is exploitation to exploit uh nudity and maybe kind of get diane Thorne out there and stuff but it seemed like the other ones were even more so and in some ways the other ones were kind of tame too compared to this one which was kind of weird. Yeah. I don't know why they went that way. I don't know if Diane Thorne decided she didn't want to get naked anymore. Because, you know, there's only little bits and pieces as opposed to this one where she's very nude. Uh, oh, very yeah. very often, actually. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a good time for what it is and stuff. So I just wanted to kind of throw those names out there to kind of give everybody an idea. Uh again like I said, you know, I got the uh, note here for the female grooming fetish. It's a good time. Uh, some of the German accents are bad. Maybe not so much her, but some of the other ones are pretty bad. I also oh, think yeah. there's a commentary there that the American is the one that can satisfy Elsa. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has to be the American that can satisfy any I love the scene where he explains that he had a talent. He realized yeah, he had a yeah. when I hit puberty, I realized I had a talent. And the the kind of a uh, Mexican American guy. I don't know what he's supposed to be—Mexican American, Italian, American. Italian, maybe Italian. <laughs> I don't know, but either way, he's like, "Oh, really?" Hmm. You know, and he sat there explaining, "I don't, I don't go." <laughs> I'm like, "What's he talking about, you, pissing?"
2: You, you <laughs> notice wolf has almost like a Rod Serling-esque wooden delivery. Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> Hang on one sec. I gotta see what the hell's going on. Hang on. He
1: has some anger. <laughs>
2: I apologize uh, in advance for any future noise my son makes. Usually he's a lovable wee lad, but a uh, little bit of a Sour Patch, much like the Sour Patch kids yes. you were eating yeah, the, uh, earlier. The
1: first one's always the roughest one. After you eat that first one, you can't stop eating them. So. Oh, I know. <laughs> All right, uh, so back on point here. Uh, you know, I, I happened upon Ilsa. I got a great story, actually, about Ilsa, and something I've never really told on the air or really told to anybody. But, you know, I kind of happened upon this at the video store when I was young. And, you know, you're young. You're looking for rebellious material. So I thought, you know, my mom will never rent this for me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's got a, you know, you see the box art. You know, it's got a Nazi uh, insignia on there. She Wolf of the SS and everything. And I'm thinking, my mom will never, my mom and dad, they'll never rent this for me. So I bring my stack of tapes, you know, the ones I want to rent. And they're looking through them and stuff. And they just they just glazed right over Elsa like it was no big deal uh we brought it brought it home and you know i often say on the show that you know i owe my mom for some of my genre cinema love now one thing about my mother though in retrospect looking back i can see that she didn't really pay much attention to what i was watching and uh, when she would just browse over these things (laughs) i often felt like you know i was getting away with like the greatest uh swindle (laughs) ever (laughs) Uh, you know i was i was pulling one over on old mom and dad and stuff but uh you know, it was a strange experience for a young man to see the film uh, for a young boy. Uh, you know, I, obviously I wouldn't, you know, tell people to show their kids this film. Uh, you know, that's not, you know, that's not my place. But I'd just say, you know, this is one of those ones that I you know would, would repeatedly sneak. And we would repeatedly sneak it because, you know, obviously it had breasts and stuff in it and gore. And it was offensive. And it was everything that I wanted in movies at that time. You know, I wanted everything to be offensive and stuff I wasn't supposed to be watching. You know, it, was, it this was also during this period that I was into cannibal films and all that kind of stuff, right? So, he kind of goes in there with it. You know, you rent a Cannibal Holocaust, and your mom's like, "Oh yeah, a cannibal movie? Haha, huh, that's funny." You know, well, not not watch Cannibal Holocaust, mom. Not as funny as you think. <laughs>
2: I love that you you employed that technique that we've all used. I think as youngsters were used. You, you probably slid Ilsa in the middle of the stack of, of yeah. movies. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's by the third or fourth one because once she's glazed over the first two, which are usually the safest ones, mm-hmm. you get to the real meat and potatoes at the back end.
1: Yeah. I would do that. <laughs> I've done that with so many. I did it with. Well, I did that with so many of them. I did it with I Spit on Your Grave. I did it with Ilsa. I did it with um, Blast House on the Left. So many films that I would see that I wasn't supposed to see. But see, I was reading Fangoria Magazine and, uh, you know, uh, cult film magazines at a very young age. Uh, So I knew about these films because of magazines. I didn't know about them because the video store was a big deal, right? I mean, there wasn't as much movie geekery as there seems to be now. But, uh, you know, I would know about these films from pictures and magazines and from things. There wasn't the Internet. So, I mean, I had to do actual research. And uh, I would just kind of happen upon them. And sometimes it was just as simple as box art. I'd walk past a film and I'd be like, whoa, I've never seen that. You know, I can remember there's a Koskinski killer snake movie. What's it called? Is it called Snakes or is it called s- is it that? I think one? it's called s-
2: <laughs> I think.
1: <laughs> it might be that one. If it, I mean, there's like that. I know there was another snake movie I saw where a woman makes love to a snake. Uh, I can't remember the I know name there's of that, the, one. that
2: Filipino snake woman one I've seen. Uh, yeah.
1: all these things you know these are the this is the kind of golden time i mean if i look back on anything nostalgic uh, with nostalgia it's really that time because me and my brother would pull this this trick this horn swoggle if you will (laughs) on my parents very often and we had a neighbor a kid that we grew up with that was you know my best friend growing up and he was very tight with us and basically a third brother and uh you know we would do this all the time we would rent these players before we bought a vcr because vcr is very expensive in the beginning and and we rent these players and you know you like i said you get the player and you get six films for like 20 bucks for the weekend. And, uh, we, you know, we go out there and get the things we were supposed to get, like, you know, ET ripoffs and things like that. And then we turn around and slide in Elsa or, you know, cannibal films, like say, make them die slowly was the one I saw probably more often than any, uh, cannibal Ferox, in other words. And, uh, we'd slide these films in there over and over and over again, faces of death, you know, all that shit that, you know, oh, yeah. you go through that phase and, and like you're talking about, that kind of goes back to what we're talking about with these, this, these SS movies. Uh, You know, you go through this phase where you think this stuff is really interesting and fun and and tasteless and, and, you know, you just want to shock people and stuff. And as you get older, it's not that you outgrow it so much. It's just that you move on. It's the same thing I was talking about uh, in – well, in feedback, people will hear it – about, like, Star Wars movies. I still appreciate them for what they are, but I don't have any interest in revisiting them. I I totally agree. I know some people like to watch them over and over and over again, but me, you know – I've watched them enough. They've, they served their purpose for me. They're great for what they are. I'm sure with my son, when he's born, I'm sure at some point I would love watching them with him again, but I have no interest in them because my interests have changed. Uh, you know, I'm just not that person anymore. Not that I don't think, again, uh, for you star Wars geeks out there. And I, I, used to be one of them. Uh, don't get upset. I'm not saying that you know, that I hate them. I'm just saying that I've moved on. And I think people do that with all types of films. I think you move on with all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, some people just hang on to that too much, mo- too long. I think I don't, I don't, I don't see the point. I mean, they're good films. They're not great films. I never have understood that logic at all. But whatever. But anyway, which, by the way, I'll say this on the air. I actually think *The Empire Strikes Back* is highly overrated. There, I said it. I would agree with you. Highly <laughs> overrated. <laughs> <laughs> and if if I was to turn into top six list for Bill and them, and I know they might be listening to this show, if I was turning in top six list, I think uh, Empire Strikes Back would probably be number one. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's highly fair. overrated. Every time somebody brings up those films, I'm always like, oh, Empire Strikes Back's magazine." I'm like, no, it's not. Star Wars is still the one for me. The other ones are just all cash-ins. But either way, back on point. Uh, oh, Chris, if you're listening to this, my apologies. I know you love the Star Wars films. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> just you know just don't take it personal because you know it's just what everybody likes but uh, either way i think it's you know you outgrow those things and it's exactly what you said about you know shock and and things like that and and that's the way these ss films are they're not for everybody uh obviously you know they're made for shock cinema cult cinema reasons and stuff and and ilsa is is you're right it's it's one of the top three of this genre i guess there's maybe 15 20 films in this genre maybe probably actually probably more than that that i haven't seen but I only know of about two or three that are any good, and uh, this is one of them. Um, so I kind of want to get that out there about the video store recollection stuff. Uh, I do think this is, like I said, it's a nasty little piece of cult cinema. There's a great scene that's shot where they got two naked bodies hanging upside down with a Nazi flag in the background. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great. That's a great image from a director who you know isn't really known for his imagery. Uh, it's more known for his uh you know kind of sleaze, the uh, Don Edmonds. But uh, that's actually a great shot. You know, I could see that as a. Uh, as a, a MPEG on somebody's uh, website just to offend people and
2: stuff. But I, I mean, oh, yeah, I, it is a nasty little image.
1: I had fun with the film. It's great to revisit these things, uh, you know, to go back and look at them again. I've seen it a lot when I was younger. I hadn't watched it probably in 10 years or so, I'd say. Yeah, probably about 10 years, maybe, maybe a little longer. So it was kind of fun to go back and revisit it and stuff and, and see Diane Thorne's breast again. I know as piggish as that sounds, but really, I mean, that's the main attraction here is naked women and and torture and riding crops. I know Doc Zom's gonna have his riding crop out while he listens to this review today, or whenever <laughs> He'll he slap listens. Slapped his to thigh it. with it. Yeah, He'll be saying Zom out, Zom in, Zom out. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you know, whatever he's a. Uh, I think he might be sticking something through the little hole in the riding crop. <laughs> <laughs> no, but either way, I mean, I think it's 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 a fun film for what it is, but. It was also one of those films while I was watching it. My wife was in the house. I was constantly on edge of her coming into the room and seeing it because I didn't have any excuses for it. That's fair. <laughs> it's a total piece of sleaze, and there is no reason the for me to be watching it other than for the show. It was not. It's not something I just sit around and watch for entertainment purposes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Unless I'm just want to you know tie one off when the wife's not home, <laughs> 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 and not alcohol. I'm talking people. I'm talking you know. Kung Fu grip is what I'm talking about, yes. Gi Joe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and like Gi Joe, sometimes I think I grip so hard I almost broke my thumb off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyway, yeah, I'll kick it back over to you for some final thoughts on Dilsa.
2: <laughs> my MVT is is the thumb breaking off. That's something <laughs> of our uh, generation. I think everyone can. Uh, you know, testify to that. You know, no more gun in hand. It's it's strictly hand to hand combat. Once the thumb goes. Yeah, I can remember my my
1: uh, brother saying he, he got grounded for this. But at one point, this is one of the greatest moments from my childhood. He broke the finger off of uh, the thumb off of Doc, the uh, African American uh, GI Joe soldier that was the doctor, and uh, he was very very angry because he had wanted this Doc figure for so long. He went to my mom. And she said, he broke away. She's like, well, I'm not buying you another one. You break these things all the time. And he walked away and said, Kung Fu gripped my ass and got grounded nice. for that.
2: <laughs> nice. Still a great moment. That's a, that yeah. is a great moment. Um, I'll tell you what made it for me is is the nudity that wasn't marred with <laughs> extreme gore. Basically, Diane Thorne's bedroom scenes, etc. Mm-hmm. That's what the film is really a showcase for, is it's yes. her wonderful body. Mm-hmm. You know, She's an incredibly sexy woman. Um, so the scenes of... of Less brutal nudity, I guess. MVT's got to be Thorne. I mean, mm. she's fantastic. And the film, you know, approaches it with the right amount of uh, winking self-referentialness. Uh, that may not even be a word, but that's okay. My score for the film is a 7.5 out of 10. I enjoy this film, absolutely. It's not one I would revisit a lot. But uh, I would want to own the box set, although it is expensive nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, But, yes. yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a look from everyone, I'd say.
1: And you have to say that it does have one of the greatest posters maybe ever. Oh. Absolutely. I mean, hands down, one of the greatest exploitation film posters I've ever seen, still to this day. Absolutely. It's an amazing, it's an amazing piece of it. I mean, the poster, let's be honest, I'd give the poster a 9.5 out of 10. <laughs> that is a great poster. Uh, okay, so my make or break is also the opening. I think if you can get past that first five minutes, then you know what you're in for. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a lot of lurid shots and stuff. And i almost have to think that Russ Meyer, if he would have made this film, if it would have been, I mean, obviously there'd have been some more comedy elements in it and stuff and people fucking chickens. But uh, I'm thinking about our Super Vixens review. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, if you can get past that first opening bit and what it's all about and the castration scene and stuff, then you're in for the ride. You'll you'll be fine. And, uh, you know, you'll you'll enjoy this if you haven't seen it. Now, a lot of people, I think, have heard of this and not seen it. But if you ever get a chance to sit down and watch it, if you're in for the move for this kind of sleaze, if you can get past that first five or ten minutes, you're good to go. Uh, it does get a little darker, though. Be warned. Uh, my mvt is also thorn i mean how can it not be she really is the standout in the film i mean the film is made around her the posters made around her or maybe around her breast either, either way the, 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 everything is made around her nobody else really stands out i mean yeah we got some good trivia bits there and also we failed to mention that this film was shot on the sets left over from hogan's heroes
2: and they agreed to let them do it because they were going to burn it down at the end, thus avoiding them have to incur the cost of tearing it down. So, I have to believe
1: yeah. Bob Crane was offset somewhere looking with binoculars.
2: <laughs> yeah, damn right he was. I was going to mention that, but I forgot to. But uh, either way,
1: yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to see that. And if you're a fan of Hogan's Heroes, you can see little bits and pieces there. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, but... I mean, you know, it, it is—it's a vehicle for Thor. It's, it's similar to what we we're talking about with *The Nest Review*, how that one film was a vehicle for Bruce Willis, and really nobody else was kind of secondary. This is definitely a thorn vehicle. They found her, they—they they used her to the best of their ability in every way, and uh, made the whole thing around her. So, I have to give it to her. It's really no—I mean, it's really the, the only way you can go. My score is a seven out of ten, a little bit lower in yours. Uh, strictly just on the fact that the film, you know, it is—it's good. It's a seven out of ten film. I mean, I like it, but it—it's not a great film by no stretch of the imagination, and uh, it's a little sloppy and stuff. But it is an entertaining film, and maybe a good film to put on if you just—if—if if you want to turn somebody on to genre cinema and they've never seen anything this fucked up. Yeah, maybe maybe this would be a good one to say, "Hey, you want to see something kind of fucked up?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah. might be a good example uh, of that. I mean, I think I, I know I've showed this to people once we learned how to do the VCR dubbing thing back in the day, oh, I yeah. know I made a copy and I showed it to quite a few people and they're like, you're sick. I was like, yes, yes, I am. Yes. and <laughs> But that, uh, that's my thoughts on Nilsa seven out of 10. So we're going to take a short break, hopefully not a Benny Hill break. And, uh, when we come back, we will uh, do some feedback. So we'll be back right after this. And I want to personally thank Bill for picking this film because uh, honestly, we probably wouldn't have picked this.
2: No, we wouldn't have. So thank you, Bill and Chris, uh, You know, glad we got it in. Hopefully, you enjoyed the nest as much as we enjoyed uh, revisiting. Also,
1: yes. All right, we'll be back right after this.
2: Hi, this is famous Hollywood
5: producer, Robert Evans. You know, I've made a lot of powerful enemies during my time in Hollywood. Like the time I pushed Steve McQueen in front of a moving car on the set of The Getaway because he was macking on my lady, Allie McGraw. But I've made one great friend, a boffo friend, if you will, since I retired. It's called ShowShow Show, and it's the best fucking movie podcast ever. It's even better than Cocaine, which I would know a lot about. Visit ShowShow Show at showshow.podomatic.com or search ShowShow Show, all
2: one word in the iTunes store.
1: morning <laughs> <laughs> was that who was that? that was neil young was it no 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 that was uh the fleet foxes that's who that was
2: oh man you know you played them a long time ago and i was i was floored by them then and i'm floored that's a fucking fantastic song man i, I really gotta i'm writing this down man before i forget again <laughs> yeah
1: yeah they uh, a lot of their stuff sounds like that and stuff they're very cool so very uh, melodic very uh, melancholy so good stuff all right so we do have listener feedback. I don't even know how many emails we have. I just know the voicemail portion. So whenever you are ready, sir, I am ready. All
2: right, I'm ready to roll. Um, now there was this thing with Dame, Dangerous Jamie. He played us a piece of music. He sent us a piece <laughs> of music. Yeah. Are we doing something with that?
1: Uh, uh, I could. Well, hang on a second. I can pull it up here real quick.
2: But okay. uh, also, uh, maybe I'll play the show out with it today. I don't know. Yeah. Why don't we do that? He sent something that he felt was fitting from a trashy piece of film that. uh, Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll uh, set
1: it up here and uh, we'll play that as the outro today. Okay,
2: that's that's a good idea. Uh, So thank you for that, Jamie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next one's from our good friend Corey. It says, Miscellaneous Musings. It's been a while since I last wrote, so my apologies if this is a bit fucked chronologically. (laughs) First, I wanted to congratulate you both on children. I don't have kids myself, but I do enjoy hearing you guys talking about your families. Little William is also quite entertaining when he joins the show. Now on to business, Sammy. I believe it was you who expressed a fondness from Miss Emily Mortimer. Actually, it was me. Uh, but did you agree with me? I can't remember.
1: Uh, yeah, I kind of agreed with
2: you. I kind of, I was kind of. It's one of those you know. <laughs> <The> lukewarm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ebba's, Corey says you're not alone she's a fine specimen and can act pretty well to boot she got me through the kid when Bruce Willis could not I must commend you both for your great interview with Peter O'Brien it was a fantastic listen and you gave the man his due I can't help but be proud of the GT other people might have taken the opportunity to poke fun at Peter but you both showed real gentlemanliness in class I can't wait for the follow up on a related note Will's dad really came through it's great you guys have such strong support for the show I've yet to catch Wrong Side of Town, uh, but it's on my short list as it was filmed in my fair city of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Nice. Some other recent films have been Mirrors 2, starring Nick Stahl and Ticking Clock with Cuba Gooding Jr. They're currently shooting Death Games with Samuel L. Jackson, who may be cashing another check. In any case, him being in a film shot locally means I'm in for the duration. At any rate, thanks guys for the shitload of content you produce and distribute. I'll keep voting for and recommending the show. Regards from the Dirty... And oily south, Corey. Nice. <laughs> the oily south. Uh,
1: yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Nick Stahl, Mirrors 2, I had no idea. I guess Nick Stahl's uh, career is kind of stalled
2: <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> That's a shame. He's a, he's a pretty solid actor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what I was thinking. So when I read that, I was like, huh, Mirrors 2? I didn't even know there was you know, going to be a sequel to Mirrors. Have I, I, know I, there... have I gotten to that point, I guess, as a movie fan, where I don't even know when there's a sequel to something? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I didn't know either, man. Um, it, it's weird. You know, there was a, a bit of a conversation with me, I think, Zom, and a few other people about some of these good actors that, and I think Emily and maybe a few other people that they're good, but they just look too young and their mustaches are too fake-looking. Like, um are talking about Leo being a, a good actor, but I just we can't get past this kind of baby face. And I think Nick Stahl is kind of the poor man's version of Leo. He's not quite as good an actor, not quite as good-looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of his eternal youth, he gets kind of stuck in a lot of uh, mediocre films nowadays. Yeah, I,
1: I would only say in like the last two years has Leo Di- DiCaprio
2: started to show any age. Uh, maybe yeah. a little bit. I mean, he still has problems with his facial hair. <laughs> oh, he does. I mean, and that's the thing like, you know, I always like him in movies, but I have to admit, Blood Diamond, mediocre film,
0: uh-huh.
2: but. Uh, and even Shutter Island, you know, I, I recognize that there's are good performances, but I can't help but admit that I'm distracted by his youth uh, or youthful look uh, in in these films. Right, right. The kind of dirty, the dirty lip mustache. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next one's from good friend Dusty, and Dusty um, says Superfly and other stuff. Hey, gents, I forgot to mention in my voicemail that I'd also watched Superfly, another one on Will's recommendation list. Liked it a lot. I was expecting it to be campy, but it was actually pretty gritty. Not what anyone would call well-made, but that's okay. Actually, the crude filmmaking added to the authenticity and made it feel even more believable. All location shooting gave the movie a sort of life-as-it-happens, a feeling. The score was outstanding and actually brought the movie some depth it might have lacked. I thought Ron O'Neill, the lead, was really outstanding. What a presence and conviction the guy had. What happened to him? Also, have you seen Superfly TNT, it looks like it's pretty hard to find. Also, you said something in the last show about movies that were great in theater and didn't hold up on video. I'd like to toss my hat into the conversation by mentioning Del Toro's Mimic. It was terrifying in the theater, but it was made to be seen on the widescreen with surround sound. Watching it on video, it comes off as a cheesy monster movie. Oh well, another thought. Have you guys seen House of the Devil? I'm going to try to sit down and watch that tonight. Okay, that's it. Talk to you soon. Dusty.
1: Nice. Yes, we have seen House of the Devil.
2: You can refer to many shows
1: back to hear what we have to say about that. Um, he mentions Ron O'Neill. Ron O'Neill basically became a character actor after the 70s. Uh, he did some pretty popular movies. He was in uh, Red Dawn, if everybody remembers. He was uh, one of yeah.
2: the generals in Red Dawn. Yeah.
1: Mm. I think he passed away from cancer. If I'm right, I think I'm I think I'm right about that.
2: Yeah, he died pretty young uh, because I remember when I'd watched original Gangsters, the uh, Larry Cohen film with you know the kind of old school greatest hits actors Pam Grier, him, Jim Brown, the Hammer. Um, he he was in that, but I think that was one of his last roles. Yeah, um, I think you're right. Yeah, he didn't do quite as much as I would have thought he would have. I mean, he did about ten films, maybe and usually those genre guys will really you know they'll, they'll be working actors but I know he did the Chuck Norris from A Force of One other than that I don't know I mean he's on I don't know maybe 10 to, I don't know somewhere in there yeah
1: it's a shame he uh, passed away though I remember when he passed away I was like oh it's a big deal man Superfly died but nobody, I was talking to at the time I was like uh, I don't even know what Superfly is <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it was, yeah. One, it was one of those uh, genre movie moments where I was all alone
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know, man. I know, I hear you. Okay, so let's see here. Um, next up is... Okay, we don't have that many emails, actually, after all. Yeah. Uh, a couple more. The suspense is riveting. Ooh, this one's uh, beefy. I' <laughs> gonna uh, take a sip of water
1: I well, know the one from Michael uh, he doesn't want us to
2: read on the air so this one's from Brian in your great state oh yes yes let me get a mouthful of Cheerios It's <laughs> go gotta get the cheer gotta get the fuel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you had these uh new banana nut Cheerios uh no but I have seen them yes they taste like banana bread with milk yeah that's uh, incredible deadly um <laughs> So Brian says, greetings and additional info about movie marathons. Hey, guys. First off, I'm a big fan of the show. You guys are the perfect combination of southern hospitality and Canuck politeness. Sammy, although I grew up in the mountains of West Virginia, I've been a transplanted Kentuckian for almost a decade. Any place that can birth Hunter S. Thompson is okay by me. I'm ready in response to a couple of things uh, during the last few shows. Firstly, during the interview with Mark David Hoyk. Is that That's how you say his name, right, Hoyk? Yeah, I think so. Uh, he mentioned that his movie marathons in Columbus, Ohio, had petered out. I'm happy to report that's not the case, although the tenants at the 24-hour horror and sci-fi marathons had declined over the past few years. Now the two gentlemen responsible for both have persevered through rough times and have continuously put on marathons that have been a rollicking good time. There were several years when the horror marathon had to be shortened to 13 hours, but as of last year, it returned to its full 24. Perhaps the best time I've had was a marathon was... At a marathon was the year of the majority of films had a zombie theme, and the special guest was George Romero. Uh, as for whether or not you could stand an entire day of film watching, I think you definitely could. After several hours, you lose track of time and it just you sit back and let the film shorts and incredibly strange trailers wash over you. It's hypnotic. Sam, uh, it's hypnotic. Sammy, since you're reasonably close to Columbus, I highly recommend taking in a marathon at least once. I think the sci-fi marathon is a little more interesting most years because of the variety of material available as opposed to horror. So both are great fun and a rare chance to see many films on the big screen. I also want to make a brief comment about Viva. I'm recently divorced, so I've been catching up on all movies. That would have gotten me in trouble while I was married. Ah, boobies. Oh, I've missed you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I was impressed with Viva overall. I think the director has a good eye and an act for set and costume design. She's also quite lovely. I like you guys. Think it's a really good film. that could stand to be about forty minutes shorter, though. I especially enjoyed the scene in the hairdresser's apartment with the sugar-eating buffoon. <laughs> I was genuinely—it was a genuinely amu- amusing—and I—and f- wow, I'm fucking chitter-jabbering. I especially enjoyed the scene in the hairdresser's apartment with the sugar-eating buffoon. It was genuinely amusing and was, I felt, one of the most successful scenes in the film. Taken for what it was, I enjoyed the film and greatly admired the effort that was put into it. Not uh, nearly enough hoo haws, though. A cute neighbor, especially. You <laughs> know. Keep up the stellar work, guys. Brian in Independence, Kentucky. Yes, nice.
1: Independence. I know where that's at. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't really have a lot to add. I don't know. I don't know if I can get to Columbus for a movie marathon or not. It's reasonably close. When he says that, it means it's not incredibly close, but closer than the Toronto International Film Festival, yes.
2: Yeah, mm. <laughs> well, looks
1: I mean, like that. I, I, I'd, I'd check out that I man. We have uh, little movie marathons here every now and then, but the problem is, like anything, when it's in your hometown, you find out about it like the weekend of, or the day, or the weekend after it happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you can relate. I mean, I know a lot of people like that. You'll say, "Oh, nothing ever happens in my town," and then they'll be at work or something, and they look through the paper and they're like, "Wait a minute, that happened last weekend." Yeah.
6: <laughs> Jesus.
1: Yeah, that, so that happens, happens, happens to a lot of people who are
2: busy all the time. So, <clears throat> what are you gonna do? Before I forget, and that happens to anyone, um, sadly, I'm going to miss it. But the Toronto Underground Cinema is uh, keeping up their wonderful programming, and they have a great Father's Day double bill uh, at starting at 7 p.m. And the 7 p.m. screening is Terminator. And that's okay, that's fine, but the 9 p.m. screening is what entertains me. Have you, Did when you watched Terminator, did you think to yourself, this is pretty good with this science fiction angle, but I think it needs more Indonesian mysticism and folklore in it to really ramp up the movie?
1: Uh, That's always my first thought with any film.
2: Naturally. (laughs) And if that is how you feel, then I think you need to get yourself down to the Toronto Underground Cinema so you can check out Lady Terminator on the big screen. I'd love to be down there, but I think... uh, it being Father's Day and me working from home, uh, I won't be able to get down there. So, yeah. someone's got to go and see uh, eels popping in and out of pussies on the big screen for me <laughs> and uh, and tell me how it is.
1: Uh, yeah, we'll have to uh, we'll have to get a uh, on the in the
2: field report. So if anybody goes, please uh, call us and let us know how it went. Yeah, absolutely. It's one where it's on our roadmap, but uh, <laughs> you know, still a ways away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, next one uh, is from good friend Mike. Mm-hmm. and he said not to read it on the show so I won't, I just want to briefly glance over it again just to see if there's anything oh, um I would say query the source that you've you've uh, emailed about what you're looking for Oh, you know, I'll just say query CB, CDB about what you're looking for, they should be able to get it uh, I'm surprised they didn't get back to you about a few things um if right. they don't get back to you, email them again. And if they don't get back to you, email me or Sammy, and we'll get back to them for you. And uh, and hopefully that'll that'll help you find what you're looking for. Yep. Yeah. I was
1: confused because we got two mics in our email. I was like, "Are you which which Michael were you reading there?" And now I don't know which ones. So. Oh,
2: yes, yes. <laughs> I was about to give away uh, last names, which isn't a good thing. No. <laughs> okay. I gotta read these quicker, man. These Cheerios are getting soggy. <laughs> um. Okay. Next one has a title that, uh, of course, interests my dear friend across the border. Mm-hmm. The title is Tilda Swinton. <laughs> I love this email. Greetings from the UK by the regular keyboard monkey, Michael H. just wanted to quickly reply to a question Sammy asked while he was reading my email on the Dennis Hopper episode. No, Tilda Swinton does not have a nude scene in Bellator's The Man from London. He's referenced sex in at least one of his films I've seen, but it's not like he's Bernardo Bertolucci and has even Marlon Brando undressed. <laughs> As a compromise, I will say that she has a brief, full-frontal nude scene in the 1993 Sally Potter film, Orlando. (laughs) I feel incredibly guilty and ashamed for recommending a Virginia Woolf adaptation with a well-regarded female director and feminist references for this reason. (laughs) I would much prefer to recommend this as a good British film, not because one of the co-hosts has a hard-on for the actress. That said, once the DVD has been carefully taken out of the DVD player and the tissue box has been put away... It will be Sam who will have to deal with male guilt afterwards, not me. Adios. <laughs> and hoping for another great episode.
1: I can think of nothing more empowering as a female than to be to be nude for Samurai's pleasure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 no. Uh, nice. All joking aside. No, I think I have seen that. Uh, I think I have seen Orlando, actually. That's the one where she kind of plays a, uh, a boy, a male. Uh, maybe I have. Huh? I think I have seen that. I don't know. I hope you. <laughs> if I haven't seen it, I'm sure I've seen the stills from it.
2: Yeah, you... Uh, yeah, I think I know. That was when you sent me that email, asked me if I knew how to create an animated GIF that would loop <laughs> over a one-minute sequence in a film, right? Yeah,
1: yeah make that uh, my <laughs> avatar on every website I go to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll kidding aside. though. No, you know, I, I understand what he's saying. He feels guilty about it, because I like got a, you know, a little bit of a hard-on for it. But, you know, I mean, hey, it is what it is. <laughs> no person is above... Liking uh, that kind of stuff, or there'd be no nudity in films. So, <laughs> precisely, <laughs> it is what it is. All right. So, uh, moving on from that, and thank you, Michael, for the reminder. I think I again, I think I've seen that film. I know I have. I just can't remember anything about it, which may be even worse. Actually, uh, now I'm gonna have to go back and revisit it, but I have a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, yeah. All right. Next voicemail. Here we go. Our first voicemail, I should say.
5: Why, good Saturday morning to you, Large William and Samurai Rick. This will be Metal Mikey sharing my thoughts in the early parts of the day. Eh, what the hey, just because it's a special occasion, I suppose. But anyways, you were right. Not only was Large William born in the great year of 1979, but so was Metal Mikey. So, yeah, 1979, very good year. Well, what the fuck? But anyways... (laughs) I distinctly recall Rick's review of uh, whatever the fuck that Amy Adams movie was, although I want it to alternatively be officially titled now Shitty People Meeting in Ireland. <laughs> and I think you've actually both showed me on a viewing sometime of North Dallas 40. In uh, A, you brought up comparisons in terms of like somewhat style to The Wrestler, which was such a great movie although I find it very hard to revisit because it's a pretty much emotional kick in the guts and be, you know what, chest yeah, you yeah, had to tempt me with chest hair talk, you know, I have to place my <laughs> chest hair in comparison to everybody else's <laughs> chest hair, so yes. we will see what happens. Oh, and don't apologize for the technical craziness of the North Dallas Bad Boys episode because you know what, you're talking to one of the least produced shows on the interwebs, <laughs> the host of Action Attraction. So you know what? It gives you a punk edge to it, I would say. Nice. And speaking of things I would dare say, I remember your call addressing uh, Emily's comment about oh how you tend to view even negatively viewed movies with a gentlemanly curve. I appreciate that. I am I can go a bit rant crazy on some of the movies I cover, but I am not saying you should watch this. But I defy the gentleman's guide to come up with. Any words of praise for Pocket Ninjas, the most personally loathed movie I have covered on my show. And, oh, man, last note here I was nearly brought to tears by whoever dropped that Strike Commando voicemail. You know, I was right there crying with Red Brown about, you know, candy, cotton, candy trees, and chocolate milkshake falls or whatever the hell he was talking to that poor little Vietnamese boy (laughs) (laughs) damn you Dakota damn you but I love Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema and I will hopefully get back to you soon alright you take care guys and talk to you later bye
1: alright the middle one there just recently celebrated a birthday the middle one so happy birthday again middle Mikey um yeah I don't really have a whole lot to add to that uh pocket ninjas yeah, I've seen some stuff about Pocket Ninjas. I don't know. I might check it out at some point. I don't know if it's a gentleman's guide movie, but uh, I might check it out at some point.
2: Well, it's 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 number six on the bottom 100 for uh, IMDb. It's got a rousing 1.4 out of 10. Um, the only reason I would see it is because the two the main what looks like the main villain is played by our friend Robert Z'Dar. And uh, one of the heroes is played by one of our friends, Scary Daniels. Nice. So, so <laughs> you know, there's it, the hook, you, I guess. Yeah,
1: you know, it's quality.
2: Yeah, <laughs> if you got Zadar and Daniels in the same film, right? <laughs> wow, there's a ninja on the cover jumping in the air with a fucking broom as a weapon, <laughs> and one the other one's got a large pair of scissors, and he's wearing a purple ninja outfit. <laughs> wow, this does look pretty fucking awful. <laughs>
1: There's, there's no excuse for it. I, that even the title, Pocket Ninjas, there's just no real excuse for it. I'm looking at it right now. Wow, that is that is a bad cover.
2: Yeah, it looks like it's like, the, like if Kid and Play did a ninja movie. <laughs> I love that the uh,
1: the evil Cobra Khan rises from the underworld and begins polluting the environment.
2: That's like they ripped uh, a GI Joe episode off, like that one where Cobra had the um, that weather controlling device.
1: I don't know why, for the life of me. Okay, it's considered a little bit of a family movie. And it's kind of based on a comic a little bit called The White Dragon. So I don't know. I don't know. They're the funniest, fiercest fighting force under four feet. That's what it says. Okay, so they're little guys. They're little people.
2: Oh, don't tell me they do. um, Are they little people or are they kids? I hope they don't do like that movie Tiptoes and they have everyone walking around on their knees in ninja outfits. Oh, wow. This might be a movie for Miles and the gang more than us. it does look like something for show show. Yeah. I remember metal Mikey's review
1: of it was quite entertaining. <laughs> so, Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. The next voicemail. Here we go.
7: Hey gentlemen, this is uh, Mark from Southern California. Uh, I've, uh, just recently listened to the Phantom of the Paradise, uh, episode. Uh, I'm glad you guys gave it a pretty good high rating. I think one of you rated it uh, 8.25 and the other one 8.5. Uh, I'm glad you guys did the Jackie Chan movie. I think it's Police Story. Uh, I've now put that in my uh, Netflix queue, so I will be checking that out. And I've still got a, probably a good 50 or 60 more episodes to catch up on, and uh, I'll let you know what I think about those as I go along. And uh, thank you for doing the show, and I will talk at you guys later. Take care. Bye.
1: All right, Mark. Yes, he went back and listen to
2: the. Phantom of the Paradise. Well, we did. We did. We rated that high, didn't we? I forgot we rated it that high. Yeah, we did. Well, you know, we both big De Bahama fans, and we both like that style. And you know, it's one of the few musicals I can say I genuinely love, as opposed to can tolerate. So
1: I have often wondered, after doing the show for so long now, I often wondered if going back, listening to the old episodes and listening to the older views, if if I would ever be surprised like that when I hear what I gave something. In retrospect you know now since we got a little bit of a back catalog and stuff i've often i've often wondered about that because I think, I think i think your opinions of films changes over i mean like you know when i was a kid i thought star wars was the greatest film ever made mm-hmm. you know and now as an adult i still appreciate the original star wars for what it is but i don't really love the star wars movies like i did as a child and now i just kind of
2: appreciate them for what they were not for what they are does that make sense uh makes complete sense. I think <clears throat> I've listened to old episodes sometimes, like if a movie that I knew was particularly entertaining to listen to, like Hammerhead or, you know, some of the green, the masterworks of Daniel Green or <laughs> stuff like that. Um, I think our, our scores could probably swing half a point, maybe a point, because, you know, emotion does play into it. You just watch the film. You're kind of riding that wave high and, and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I'd be interested to see if there's one that in retrospect, I thought, wow, I gave, you know, let's like two or three point bump where that's when it really would become interesting. because a point I can understand, you know, I think mm-hmm. we try not to, but it's inevitable to a degree. Um, a lot of films, I would say I stand by my scores because uh, I have my ice cream book, right? So right. every now and then I'll just peruse it and there's some I change, but most of my I thing I, I stand by for the most part.
1: Yeah, the uh, the one one that's interesting to me that I thought about is uh, that when we talked about Bronson, uh, I think I gave it a review. I think I gave it a rating in the sixes. But
2: oh yeah,
1: as time go as time has gone on, and I've seen it a couple more times, I would probably bump that up into the high sevens, possibly the low eights now. Mm-hmm. So that's a good example of uh, how things change and how you know how you change your perception over time. I don't ever think any review you do is is a lock. I think you can always change your perception of it over time. Oh, for sure. Especially when you review the kind of films we do. So, <laughs> All right, uh, next question. Here we go.
8: Hey, guys. It's Scott in Toronto calling. Uh, got something really nerdy to call about. Uh, back of Forest Whitaker's Neck called chatting about uh, the genesis of the shark versus helicopter being in uh, <laughs> Jaws 2. And uh, probably got to really go all the way back to the 1966 uh, Batman movie. Ah, um, uh, yes. Classic uh, Ed Wood-like scene, where Batman uh, is descending on a ladder, uh, fighting the worst rubber shark you've ever seen. (laughs) Uh, It's not a helicopter. In technical DCU parlance, I think it was called the Bat Gyro at the time. (laughs) And um, this is where they get the canisters of the various oceanic repellent bat sprays, and Robin reaches for the shark repellent, and that's how they take (laughs) care of that. So it's really too bad that shark uh, repellent. Wasn't available in, uh, in Amity for Jaws to to help take care of sharks, and various sharks through the ages. Anyhow, just wanted to point that out. Uh, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere, as all things
1: are. Take care, guys. Cheers. All right. Reminded me of the, uh, the original Batman film. Have you ever seen the original Batman film?
2: Nope, never have, but I've seen that clip he's talking about, and it is a pretty incredible clip. I think if I remember correctly. I mean, it's a gargantuan-looking uh, fake shark. <laughs> yeah. And there's um, one of those rope ladders with the wooden steps.
1: Yeah, yeah, one of those ladders that if you've ever actually tried to climb up one of those ladders <clears throat> in real life, it's very tricky.
2: Oh, forget it. <laughs> it. It
1: can be incredibly tricky. I always used to love that... In these movies, people would jump on these ladders and just climb them really quick and stuff. And I'm like, uh, yeah. If you don't really have some training of some sort, it's not easy to climb up and down those type of ladders. <laughs> no. They're kind of tricky because they, they shake and rattle and move around. I mean, you're climbing up something that's moving around. But anyway, uh, I happen to love that Batman film, that 1966 version. It is so ridiculous. It is, it is really, when everybody makes fun of the old Batman, the camp Batman series, I think they're really making fun of the ridiculousness of the film because the film is so fucking ridiculous that... It's like, it's a hoot, man. I mean, literally, it's a hoot. I mean, there's just just some stuff in it that just cracks me up to this day. I mean, my brother used to just make fun of the uh, fact that whenever the Riddler would tell a riddle, you know, Batman would figure it out and we'd look at each other like,
4: what? What the fuck did he just say?
1: You know, he's like, Robin, he said dolphins. Dolphins means sharks, which means water, which means shark repellent. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah.
2: No, I know. It's so cryptic and somehow. But then again, that's why Bruce Wayne's the millionaire playboy and we're just. Yeah. Your friendly neighborhood podcaster. I don't,
1: I don't know why for the life of me, but I think I'll always have a soft spot for Adam West's Batman more than anybody else. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's my love of camp, but
2: possibly it's just the way he talks that I love so much. I, You know, <laughs> something maybe I shouldn't have let sour me, but as I've said to you before, I've been completely and utterly soured by how much of a cocksucker. Yeah. Adam West is in real life that I can't can't get past that anymore. Yeah, he is. uh, For those of you who don't know, he is not the nicest person. (laughs) No, the guy the guy clips people like seventy bucks or something for an autograph. (laughs) Are you kidding me?
1: He's not the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Celebrity was. And if anybody out there has a good experience with him, I'd be interested to hear it. But uh, uh, yeah, he pretty much ignores people. uh,
2: If you don't have cash, or has a good free experience, which will be very (laughs)
1: rare. Yes. Yes. Probably back in the 70s somewhere. All right, Uh, next question. Here we go.
7: Hey, gents, this is Phil. Enjoyed your Dennis Hopper show. Um, You also talked on your feedback section about commentary tracks and how you don't get around to listening to them as much um, as you'd like. I'd like to recommend a good one. It's a good film, too. It's uh, Used Cars from 1980, directed by Robert Zemetkis. And it stars Kurt Russell. And Kurt and Robert Zemeckis give a hilarious commentary track. Very informative. Kurt Russell always gives a good commentary track, especially with Carpenter. But um, this one's a really good uh, track. Very entertaining. Uh, very informative. And it's a great film. I We probably might have seen it at one point, but uh, it's worth a revisit. All right, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: All right. it was good friend to show, Phil. Um, you know, it's odd that he mentions that because uh, Rupert and I were talking just the other day about commentary tracks and how we both love that used cars commentary track. And and it, I, I believe it was Rupert. I hope I hope it was or else I'm going to look like an ass. But, hey, that wouldn't be the first time. Uh, but I, I believe that's what it was. And uh, we were talking about it and how great it is. I've listened to it a couple times. It is one of the better ones. Samarkas gives, uh, for some of the films he makes, I know he makes big commercial films, but he's a very in-depth uh, commentator when on his films i mean he gives you all kinds of information i mean it's so chock full of info that you're kind of overwhelmed by how much he gives you in uh, you know a short hour and a half or two hour time frame uh but that one's also great because it's got the great kurt russell laugh i don't know if anybody else is familiar with the great kurt russell laugh uh, outside of his acting but it's insane when he gets going he's got this i was gonna
2: ask you whispery laugh I was going to ask you if he uh, if he did the commentary because he always gives good commentary. His stuff with carpenters great. He's good on commentaries. Yeah,
1: he is. He is. He's uh, really good. It's for an actor. I mean, he's a lot better than uh, Schwarzenegger, whose commentary track on both Total Recall and uh, Conan leaves something to be desired.
2: I've listened to his Total Recall one, and yeah, it's a little bit uh, <laughs> lame. I mean, it's, it's it's I guess it's kind of good because the novelty of Arnie doing a commentary, but. It certainly doesn't give you any insight.
1: Yeah, the uh, I know that there was a lot of controversy about that because he wouldn't do it unless he got paid. He was like one of the first yep. people to ever get paid to do a commentary trick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Arnie, you know, he wants to make a buck. <laughs> wonder what,
2: uh, I wonder how much he got paid for that commentary.
1: I don't know. Uh, I hope it wasn't paid on quality because it wasn't a good one. That one, I hope, was, I, don't, I hope it was paid <laughs> on quality. Fuck him. <laughs> yeah. That one, uh, I know the, the Conan one, him and Milius is pretty hilarious because they just keep, you can hear Milius breathing. And you're like, yeah. oh, the steel, the riddle of the steel. And you, you know, Schwarzenegger <laughs> talking about uh, women and stuff, kind of a little bit of the misogynist coming out of him, which is, uh, for those of you who have read any interviews or behind the scenes stuff, supposedly uh, Schwarzenegger's quite infamous for his uh, lack of, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? Tact.
2: When it comes to being around females. He's probably, uh, um, masturbated to a few of those <laughs> feminist, uh, films. Yeah. <laughs> just for the sake of...
1: Not, ex- not exactly the, uh, yeah. I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> All right. Next voicemail.
3: Hi, guys. It's Christine. Um, I've been meaning to call. I don't know why I keep not. Um, I just wanted to thank you for, um, taking a look at Street Fighter, it was nice to hear, um, like, a review on it. I knew you guys would give it a fair shake, and that's why I wanted to hear you talk about it. It is a lot of fun, and it's goofy and stupid, but um, it was really nice to hear, like, kind of a serious review on it. So thank you again, and Ladies Appreciation Month was awesome. And that's actually another thing I wanted to say. I'm so excited to hear you guys cover Viva. It was actually something I saw maybe almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, a while ago now, and we, I did a little write-up in one of the, um, old issues of the magazine, I don't Mm -hmm. recall which one off the top of my head, but I was quite impressed with it, and, um, pretty much agreed with everything you guys said, I did find it a touch long also, um, but it was fun, and it was definitely effectively stylized, it, um, really captured an era and a mood and a feeling, and for that reason, I really enjoyed it, um. But you guys are doing a great job, and thanks so much, and I'll talk to
1: you later. Bye. All right, the wonderful and lovely Christine. i tell you what, uh, she's been on the the Girls on Film Radio uh, podcast twice now, and she's always behind the scenes uh, to give everybody a little bit of inside info. Christine's always like, I don't like the sound of my voice. I don't want to do these things and blah, blah, blah. But she does a great job on these podcasts. I don't know what her problem is.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. Just a little too modest, but, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. She does a fantastic job.
1: She does. And uh, that's just my way of saying that you do a fantastic job, Christina. Keep doing it, please. I'd love to hear your commentary on films. Uh, yeah, we're going to give any film a fair shake. I don't care how bad it is. I'm going to give any film a fair shake. I'm not going to just piss. On. I don't think I've ever completely pissed on anything except maybe Turkish Star Wars. But to be honest with you, I mean, how can you not piss on Turkish Star Wars? I mean, it's just so bad, but it was bad in a fun way. I don't know if I'd ever watch it again. Especially the viewing experience wasn't optimal that I watched it with. Watched it on Google Video of
2: all fucking places. <laughs> you and me both, brother. It, yeah, it's yeah, but it, it seemed to be a bit of a chore. That was the problem. Like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't trashy fun, but it it seemed to be a chore. Well,
1: the training was sequence tedious. was awesome. the training sequence was awesome. Yeah, the boulders and uh, some of the ridiculousness we were seeing that that was awesome. But it, unfortunately, that was the best five <laughs> minutes of a two-hour film. <laughs>
2: That reminds me, and I've been I meaning to mention this for months and months, there's someone out there, one of our, our awesome listeners, who has a blog uh, that's dedicated to the films we've covered from a standpoint of what they do is they give a composite score of the films we've covered and that has them rated from 10 to 1 uh, in terms of how much we mutually liked films. Oh, what's I can't remember the name of the blog now but I've seen it a few times and it's pretty up to date like I looked last month and it was updated right through April um but that just reminded me because Turkish Star Wars is really near the bottom of the list <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: I think the only things below it are like from Justin to Kelly um maybe a couple others I don't know
1: well for Justin to Kelly it is one of the worst I mean it's it's just so bad but uh you know that was you know a little bit of you know, Bill trying to get back at us and stuff. So I understand the the reasoning behind that. Yeah, that was that was a rough one. <laughs> I did get a little mad during that review. <laughs> Spice World wasn't so bad, but that
2: one great. was great. I'd own it on DVD, man.
1: <laughs> wasn't that bad, but uh that was bad in a good way. But uh from Justin to Kelly, the problem was it was just uh, so earnest, so uh, so mm. bad. All right, next voicemail.
9: Hey, gents, it's Emily. Um, just listening to the last episode. And as much as I have to say, as much as I loved your talk of Bad Boys, because it was phenomenal. It was one of those movies that, for some reason, I used to watch a lot as a kid with my brother. I don't know why. Um, Doc Zom's musical take on it was kind of one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. But, I mean, so, so are your voices every week. Uh, the other thing was just to answer Rupert's question about Bad Dreams. I'm pretty sure, um, I remember reading an interview with, um, I think, Gail Hurd, one of, like, the, you know, 13 ex-wives of James Cameron, and a pretty interesting producer of a lot of cult films, uh, and she, I think, was a producer on that film, and I think I remember her saying it was just one of those cases of, like, really bad luck, where Bad Dreams was already filming, I think, um, right as Nightmare came out, so it was one of those just, like, ah, and the films have a lot in common, but at the same time, Bad Dreams is a pretty interesting little 80s dream supernatural thriller, and I, I enjoyed it. I-, I also am almost 100% sure that it's still on Netflix because I watched it a few months ago for the first time, and it was there. I guess that's it. I'm just rambling as always, so I'm going to go back to watching the U.S. maybe win a soccer game, which is just kind of odd. Bye.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was watching the, uh, the Twitter and the Facebook comments about soccer because I was at work. I think when that was going on.
2: <laughs> oh man, what a fucking no offense, <laughs> what a piss off that was. Respectfully.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What else she? Oh, bad dreams. Yeah, you know, bad dreams is is an interesting film, and uh, I think it was kind of. I think it was. I believe she's right. And I believe I read too that. Um, it was uh, in in process of being made and stuff when uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of swooped in and kind of took all that stuff, which in a way is a bad thing, but also in a way it's a good thing, because I think Bad Dreams actually got some, uh, some press because it kind of hit on the dream thing, uh, because that Nightmare Boogeyman dream thing became real big there for about five years after that original Nightmare on Elm Street came out, so I think it got quite a bit of viewings that it normally wouldn't have gotten uh, because of that, but who knows? I mean, my, my favorite thing about it is it's got uh, Mr. Lynch in it, so... That's my thing when it comes to bad dreams.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's the thing I most remember him, and I think Jennifer Rubens is kind of cute. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely want to revisit it because I've, I've seen it twice, but both times were a long time ago. I do own it on VHS. I got to get it out and, and watch it as kind of an adult now. Um, I'm glad that it held up, you know, because, you know, we always talk about this, especially with horror films. When you're, you know, a boy and you, you like your horror films, and you come in, sometimes you go back back and watch them, and you think, yee. This was not good, but. uh, Yes. I'm glad this one held up.
1: Yes. uh, Well, that's. We've we've talked about that before with many films, but you're right. Certain horror films I know used to scare the crap out of me. I go back and see them, and I'm like, "Uh, I don't know what I was scared of. No,
2: I know. Exactly.
1: All right. Next voicemail. This one's from uh, Terry over Paleo Cinema. So here we go.
6: Hi, gents. It's Terry from Paleo Cinema. I just thought I'd drop you guys a voicemail uh, let you know what I, what I thought of the last few episodes of the podcast rupert congratulations on the alan Arkush interview that was terrific uh, get crazy has been one of my favorite sort of cultish films for a while now and um, i really appreciate getting um Arcush's viewpoint on it would have been interesting to see his version of it so um really nice that we could um find out that out because it's one of those movies that should be on dvd and unfortunately as as you said during the interview It can't be so What a bummer Yeah one other thing Sammy is uh, You mentioned from Neutral 3 watching that The Bronson, Jill Ireland comedy Yeah watching Charles Bronson do comedy Is kind of like watching Michael Berryman Do a a romantic comedy It's just not going to play Interesting effort and it's nice to see him try something different in it, but, yeah, not a big success there. <laughs> North Dallas 40, not my kind of thing. Even though it's not about the football, it's really not my kind of film. But I'll probably watch it just for those character interactions that you guys mentioned, so thanks for, for that one. Dennis Hopper, what can we So I've um, talked about Hopper in, in podcasts. Yeah, a unique actor and a lot of fun. One of the films I want to see of his and I'm not sure whether it was name-checked in your podcast or not, is uh, My Science Project, where he played a hippie science teacher and, and was really kind of playing on the Easy Rider vibe of things during that. Uh, it's one of those roles where Hopper's really having fun, and I do like to see that kind of playfulness in his role sometimes. Yes, he can do the serious stuff, but that playfulness is... <laughs> part of his character obviously and it's always interesting to see when he makes a movie that's uh, a little less than serious anyway i won't leave won't keep you guys any longer thank you very much for the support you've shown me and my podcast anything i can do for you guys at any stage let me know with your one and um you guys have got the bugfuck craziest listeners (laughs) in any podcast i know and i think it's Fucking wonderful. Anyway, take care. I've got to rug up again because it's winter down here. And please do keep up the good work. All right.
1: That was Terry from Paleo Cinema. So I would love, I would die and love
2: to see a Michael Berryman romantic comedy. I'm in, man. He needs to be in uh, a few of these. It would definitely add to my appeal. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would help a little bit more if we could see some Michael Berryman in there.
2: What is it? Though? What's that term? Lion in Winter? yeah With a bit of a line a winter love story like if he did he was in the peter o'toole role in that one venus that i mentioned a few weeks ago <laughs> he's got to do it man yeah that'd be
1: nice uh yeah you know terry's show is great i don't really there's a whole not a whole lot i can comment on on his voicemail i mean he's basically telling us you know stuff about our show but uh you guys that haven't checked out peggo cinema check it out i'll give you guys that haven't checked out a good kind of a, terry kind of covers anything he's kind of moved it up a decade into the 80s i believe uh, or is yes, yes, yeah, the 80s. He hasn't gone into the 90s yet, but he covers everything in between, from very basically from the very beginnings of film uh, history to the uh, to the back end now and up into the 80s. He did some Larry Cohen stuff recently, but he usually covers like two or three films a show, and he gives you a lot of detailed information and stuff, and he manages to cram that all into about an hour podcast, which is pretty impressive. So, and he always picks very interesting music for his breaks. That stuff that's like you know something. It's stuff I wouldn't pick. And that's why I like it so much because it's stuff I wouldn't pick, and so it's kind of like refreshing. You know what I
2: mean? Oh, I love the music he picks. It's yeah, like you said, it's it's eclectic. Um, and I, I love, and it may sound weird, but when he kind of recounts uh, how certain movies or movie experiences tie into his childhood, it's 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 pretty wonderful. You can kind of hear him going back in his mind, thinking about. Uh, Oh, he heard this song at this time. It just, yeah, fantastic show. I can't recommend it enough for everyone. Yeah.
1: All right, next voicemail.
4: Howdy, gentlemen's guide to midnight cinema. This is Doctor Zom, <laughs> and I'm calling to talk about some movies that I watched. And I got my wristwatch in front of me so I don't go over the three minutes. So let's get <laughs> right to it. The first one is Russ, the Rust Myers film. Psycho. I really enjoyed this. Uh, it was crazy, man. Crazy! Uh, lots of big busty ba- babes. Whoa. Femme Fatales. <laughs> lots of cuckold men uh, who are just the biggest pussies on the planet Earth. And Alex Rocco who played Mo Greed in the Godfather Part 2. And he talks like he has a fistful of change stuck up his nose, but he is the closest thing to a real man in the entire movie. And he has three really, really creepy, scuzzy psychos motorcycles. And the funny thing is, is that they were riding like little Honda fifty. I don't know. Look like mopeds. I think they're little scramblers or something. But it's a pretty good movie. And if you ever get a snake bite out in the uh, desert, uh, hope that uh, one of Russ Myers' chicks is around to suck out the poison. <laughs> suck it out! Suck it out! <laughs> okay. The next one is... Uh, I watched Invictus. I mean, it was, I guess, a good movie, but, you know, Clint just... It was the flattest damn movie. I just I mean, it just didn't do anything for me. Uh, another one I watched was from Paris with Love, with a uh, very very butch, uh, Fire Island esque John Travolta <laughs> doing his thing, kicking some ass, snorting some blow, and banging some chicks in the back door. Shutter <laughs> Island was uh, very good. I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was um, you know pretty good movie, uh, top to bottom. Mark Ruffalo, who I give a lot of shit to, that's the second movie that I've seen him in that I like. The other one would be Zodiac, and Jane Gum, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. I uh, was he was in it, and he only had like a very short, brief part, but it was weird and creepy. And so I liked Shutter Island. And lastly,
0: oh,
4: I watched Almost Human with. Thomas Million and Henry Silva. Motherfucker! Clean my shoes! I like how Henry Silva says, Mother! Fucker! Clean my shoes! He said that in another movie, but in this one he says, "Motherfucker." <laughs> and Thomas Milian was about as sleazy as they come. The human chandelier was great, and I'm running out of time. I'm gonna, I'm
7: gonna, I am going to i am going got to go! Zonk.
1: All right, he called back, but we'll talk a little bit about that one first. Uh, yeah, like uh, I guess that was, uh, I guess Henry Silva was trying to get a catchphrase going. Do you think so? Maybe with the motherfucker clean my shoes.
2: Yeah, I, it must have been the case, but he does say motherfucker quite well, and I really I need more. I got I haven't watched the Silva in a while, man. I gotta get my Silva fixing.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll have to bring the Silva back. We haven't had him back. I got a I got a double deuce episode with him uh, planned on my end, but uh, Ooh. Uh, we we. We got uh, some other stuff to do first, obviously. Because with the Double Deuces, it's just one of us to pick the films. And then with the uh, the uh, uh, the trilogies, Trilog. we, kinda, we yeah we try to kind of switch them up. And it's actually Will's turn to do the trilogy. It was actually Will's turn to do the trilogy GTMC last time, but we had an opportunity to do the Red Riding trilogy. So we wanted to do that really badly. So we kind of just kind of agreed on that one. But the next trilogy GTMC you see will be a Will's trilogy. And then the next Double Deuce you see, whenever that happens, will be me. So... We like to mix yeah. it up a lot because I don't like to be... The reason why you don't see them that often is because then it would be just one person picking the films, and I kind of like both of us picking films each week because it makes it a little bit more exciting.
2: Yeah, no, it does. Um, I can't wait. You know, I think maybe then within... Whew, within a couple of weeks, maybe we'll do that trilogy that, um, you know, I, I know which one it is uh, I want to do. so.
1: Yeah. And the uh, yeah, if for those of you who haven't seen Almost Human, please get on that. I mean, especially if you like... Uh, some over the top stuff and uh, Silva and Millian and some just some craziness. It's on our roadmap for the next time around. Just because I mean, it was an obvious choice, but I feel like it's a kind of film we could talk about and have some fun with. So,
2: and I think it might be Lindsay's best. And I think it features it features Silva as the good guy in this one. So, <laughs> right
1: there, that's uh, r- that's a rarity. You don't see Silva as a good guy very often. Not very often. <laughs> All right, next voicemail You call back.
4: And uh, hey, I wanted to add uh, a, a couple other movies that I watched uh, when I was out of my three minute time limit so I'll make this one quick as not to be annoying. Um, the one was called uh, The Night They Killed Rasputin. Uh, it was made in 1960. It's an old black and white movie but it is pretty damn good. I like movies about Rasputin, uh, The Mad Monk and uh, this one was a good one. Uh, the... Catchphrase or the tagline for the movie was Women hungrily sought his embrace as he taught them salvation through sin.
0: <laughs>
2: All right. <laughs> so. And Zom would be one of the bug shit crazy <laughs> listeners that Terry loves so much. Yes. <laughs> Good
1: old Doc. Good old Doc Zom. All right. (laughs) Nothing else to (laughs) add there. All right. uh, Next, and I think this is possibly the last voicemail. Here we go.
7: Gentlemen, it's Mike down in Florida. I was listening to the show and uh, heard that, uh, you know, someone was asking about the uh, first genre movie experience people had that hooked them into the genre. Um, Let me paint a picture for you kids out there listening to your – electronic devices and your, you know, back in my day when we had transistor radios and, uh, you know, canned ham was a new invention. Um, we used to have these things called the drive-in. And, uh, when I was a kid, my parents would take us every weekend to the drive-in to see something that they wanted to see. Rarely was it really something that we wanted to see. Um, I did get exposed to a lot of genre stuff, stuff like, you know, Legend of Boggy Creek and Macon County line and race with the devil. And you know, those are the films that really stuck with me, I guess. Um, one particular weekend, they went to see something I don't even recall what it was, uh, because on the other screen, it was uh, destroy all monsters and the uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, and I spent the entire evening. Although I couldn't hear it, I could turn around in the back window and look out and see the other screen. So I got I watched it silently, which is probably you know considering the dubbing probably a good thing. But I know I know that that hooked me on. Kaiju films for the rest of my life. I still love a good, you know, monster rumble. You know, I have been known in King Kong versus Godzilla to start chanting ECW, ECW. But anyway, um, yeah. So that's really what hooked me into that that whole thing. And then, you know, of course, I guess I was in a prime, golden time because I had the seventies. I was going to drive in all the time. Last movie I saw at the drive-in, by the way, I would break into Electric Boogaloo, and that's not a joke. But anyway, growing nice. up. Going from there, I grew up in the 80s where we hit the video revolution, so I could rent pretty much anything. And my parents, you know, again, you know, didn't really care what we watched. They, they weren't, you know, the overly protective type. So I watched The Hills Have Eyes and I watched, you know, uh, Night Beast. I can remember that box looking out at me on the video shelf, uh, you know, and just everything in between. So that's what got me in into genre cinema before there was genre cinema. And I'm also going to bring this up. There were people like Joe Bob Briggs doing stuff, but as much as I dislike him now, the Michael and Harry Medved. Michael Medved's become sort of this conservative talk guy now, but back in the day, they used to do the Golden Turkey Awards every year, and they would talk about the worst movies ever made, and the movie channel back in those days was really good about letting them host whole weekends of just terrible stuff like The Terror of Tiny Town or you know, or Plan 9 from Outer Space, and, and you know, the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies, Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of great stuff like that. So that really turned me on to bad movies as well. So I have to give those guys credit, even though, as I said, I'm not a big fan of Medved now, but, uh, so there's my memories of genre film. And speaking of genre film, I'm, you know, I know you've already done it now, but I'm looking forward to Elsa Schiebel for the SS because I'm a big Dave Friedman fan. And of course, Dave took his name off that movie because he just thought it was so terrible. And so, damn offensive. The man who brought you Blood Feast and, you know, The Defilers and a (laughs) a Taste of Honey, a Swallow of Brine thought that Ilsa was too too raucous. That's a good, you know, (laughs) um, a really great recommendation when he takes his name off of it. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. You take it easy, guys. Thanks for the advice, and I hope everybody will keep an eye out for the upcoming podcast, The Dreaded Sundown, because it's coming very soon. Ciao.
1: Alright, that was Mike from down in Florida. The podcast The Dreaded Sundown. Nice title. Great title. <laughs> all right, so that is all of our feedback. So we can get into our pleasantries and stuff.
2: I have to get my our pleasantries out. It was a pretty whoa. As you know. It was a pretty precarious uh Last few voicemails behind the scenes I almost dunked my uh, <laughs> microphone In the coffee cup, almost put the coffee in my lap
1: Yeah, I heard that actually Yeah,
2: I'm sure the listeners will get to hear it too <laughs> So that was awesome um, Okay, so uh, Sister Shows, of course Show Show, which just put out a new episode OTC, uh, which just did what we did uh, In terms of reviews And CD, which has their kind of thing, episode out Check them out uh, Family Movie Night, Movie Meltdown uh, all the Pop Syndicate shows, Big Red Podcast, NOTLP, uh, The Podcast Podcast, etc. Et all of our good friends and happy related to Fozzie, of course. Um, Chinooker vs. Punner, Paleo Cinema, Cinecultania. Uh, are they consistently back now, Sammy? I know that you said they put an episode out last week. I haven't had a chance to don't catch
1: don't know if they're consistently back, but they came back at least for one episode. Don't know if they're consistently back yet, though.
2: Okay. Cinerama. Uh the Man with the Chest Hair Metal Mikey on Action Attraction, Better in the Dark, uh, V Cinema, Destroy the Brain, uh Girls on Was it Girls on Film Radio yep. Yep. Podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh they have two episodes out, a third one coming soon. Uh the Gore Press Gorecast. Uh what's going on with Gleecast? Are they gonna do something over the summer? Do you have any idea about that?
1: I have no idea what they're gonna do. <laughs>
2: so I was thinking about that a few days ago. I was like, man, what are they going to do? I think now you guys got to re- review, review movies or something, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Spill in the time. There's only so much glee one can talk, I would think. <laughs> you would think. Yes, well, you yeah. know,
1: actually, in reality, they could go back and cover the first half of the season, I guess,
2: if they wanted to. Yeah, I guess technically they could. They're
1: still going to run out of uh, shows to talk about either way.
2: Yes, they are. Um, of course, our favorite magazine paracinema at paracinema.net uh, with Mike, the soon to be co-host of the podcast The Dreaded Sundown mm-hmm. commentary.com congratulations Sean the Blackhawks did it now my maple leaves have the longest Stanley kept drought, awesome 1967 wow yeah, long fucking time man <laughs> uh, bloggies we have Pickle Oaf, Lightning Bugs Lair Deadly Dolls House Chuck Norris Ate My Baby Naked Eskimo, This is Quiet Cool, Heaven's Trash, our West Coast correspondent and interviewer extraordinaire Rupert at Rupert Pupkin Speaks, uh, Uncool Cat, Rach on Film, which is R-A-C-H, Dear Bastards, and uh, I know we haven't done very many movies of theirs lately, but uh, CDB, I'm going to go on, I think you know what I'm going to do, Sammy, to make up for that is I'm going to go on a run of CDB movies to kind of balance it all out Okay. Um, in the near future. Um We've got to talk about something off the air with that, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, Podcast Alley, of course, throw us your votes. iTunes Reviews, we're still a little bit dry there. Someone throw together a few sentences. Uh, you know, whatever works, I guess. Uh, friend us both on Facebook. Join the Facebook group. As always, we post our posters and trailers there. We get into film and non-film-related discussion uh, on our, on our uh, feeds or profiles. Follow Sammy at twitter.com backslash ggtmc. And, uh, as always, you have a donate button if you wish to contribute to the cause, which uh, helps with the upkeep of the show. And uh, that's pretty much it. What uh, what are we covering next week on your end, Sammy? All
1: right. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what I really want to cover. I got one roadmap in front of me. I know we've added some more stuff. I've been looking at the same roadmap for a while. I need to print off that other roadmap and get some of the other stuff going. Uh, let's go back and let's, – let's this film we've talked about for a long time, and I know I think it's on your PVR. so let's do uh, – On my side, let's do uh, Blood Simple, the Coen Brother film.
2: Ooh, very nice. We'll do that
1: one. I believe it's on your PVR. I believe you've
2: talked about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it definitely is. And this will give me a chance to remove one more thing from my PVR in Wipe the PVR Month.
1: I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to help you out during Wipe the PVR Month.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, it's going to be, as we always like to say, a very interesting and different show. Uh, We talked about it. I promised it once and then broke a few hearts, apparently. We're going to be teaming up the Coen brothers uh, with uh, Katsuhiro Ishii, uh, and we're doing Funky Forest, The First Contact, the Japanese mind melter of a film. So
1: Nice. This ought to
2: be an interesting show. <laughs> oh, boy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, a little Funky Forest and a little Blood Simple. I don't even know what the hell I'm going to call that.
2: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> blood? I don't know. That's, uh... f-
1: funky Blood Simple? Flunky? F- flunky? Flunky blood. Funky flood simple florist florist <laughs> nice yeah, Well, yeah. we got a week to figure it out yeah yeah so that'll be the show uh next week we'll do blood simple and funky forest uh, that should be fun it should be interesting all right uh playing us out today a little tune from the cl- instant classic uh killer workout sent to me by one dangerous jamie uh this will play us out so, Large William, uh, take your breaks, what you need to do, and we'll be b- we'll be back, of course, on our end here soon to record the rest of the show. But on your end, we will see you guys next week. So, adios, adios, and hopefully, I can get this to come up. The there we go. All
0: Sexy. Sure.